This episode of Tales from the Backlog, just like every episode, is brought to you by the wonderful patrons of the Tube Podcast Network. Some personal heroes of mine, like Chris Nelson, the Top 3 Podcast Crew, Zolgeek, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Nick Ficori, Jill, Soccer, ZNA, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S., Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, J.D., Doug Leaf, Jason Emery, Rob Shack, Brian Skersha, Randall, Jake Martin, Jenny E., and many more have all chosen to show their support by going to patreon.com slash realdavejackson to kick me a few bucks a month and help support the show. In return for their generous donations, they're getting bonus episodes like this month. We've got a couple of bonus episodes. We've got an episode about detention. And we had an episode of my bonus retro gaming show called Tales from the Way Backlog about Zombies Ate My Neighbors this month. In addition to all of those, these fine folks are getting the knowledge that they're helping to support Daves around the world, and that is just priceless now, isn't it? You can be like them and go to patreon.com slash realdavejackson. Just a few bucks a month will help support the show, help me buy games, and get you some cool treats in return. All of that being said, let's get on to Signalis. Hello, everybody. My name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to bring a game out of the backlog, play it, and discuss. I have two wonderful guests with me today. They're both friends of the show. They're the two hosts of the Retro Hangover podcast, and some would say they're two halves of a whole. Chris Copleen and Shane Kosky. Welcome, guys. We're not clear on the manner of said hole, but let's, <laughs> let's, yeah, sure. We'll go with that. Uh-huh. Hey, how's it going? Yes. With our, our proclivity to get into, uh, genitalia jokes, that hole could be anything. Could be could an be orifice. Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. or could be like a pie, a whole pie. Could be anything. A lot of holes in this game too. Today we're talking about Signalis, which is a survival horror game developed by Rose Engine and published by Humble Games and Playism for PC and contemporary consoles in 2022. Uh, Spoiler policy for this episode, if you have not played Signalis, the way this show always works is we're not going to spoil things at the beginning of the episode, Uh, especially this game has a story that is best left experienced for yourself. So we're going to set it up in the non-spoiler section of the show, but then we are going to warn you when the spoilers start. You can also check down in the show notes for a timestamp for when those spoilers will begin. So, um, Chris and Shane, uh, you guys host a retro gaming podcast and this game we're talking about today is not retro, but it's very retro inspired. Uh, so let's give some elevator pitches for people. What is Signalis? I wrote down that Signalis is a dreamy homage to classic survival horror like Resident Evil and Silent Hill. What would you guys say? Uh, I would say that it's like... Like I was trying to think of an elevator pitch and I read yours and I almost was going to copy it word for word, Dave, but it's, <laughs> that would have been a good move. Yeah. It's <laughs> a, uh, so I'll just try to reword it to, to broadly more encompass what I see out of it, which is a loving tribute to the 32 bit era of top down 3d action games or otherwise with a heavy inspiration from the survival horror genre. Mm-hmm. And Shane. 
Man, mine was far more succinct than that. I it's it's Silent Hill in space, baby. Hell yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> that's Dead Space. Awesome. <laughs> that is not. That absolutely is not. Most, most certainly is not Dead Space. Uh, oh. But yeah, um, good good elevator pitches to give people a quick idea. Um, I played this on PC at the time of recording. It's on Game Pass, although I think it's leaving by the time people hear this. It might be gone. Um, it took me nine hours to beat. How about you guys? Where did you play? How long did it take you? Yeah, I was on, um, well, I kind of bounced back and forth. So technically PC, but I I had cloud save with my Steam Deck. So mm-hmm. I think the majority of my time was on Steam Deck with a little bit of PC action. And I want to say, all told, I was right in the neighborhood of about 10 or 11 hours. It took me a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. I also played on PC via Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, and uh, it also took me about 10 and a half hours. And I just want to say here, how dare you, Microsoft, take it off Game Pass? I'm just going to blame Microsoft because they're the easy target here. (laughs) Right before October, you're going to take a horror game off Game Pass for October? Mm -hmm. Shame on you. Wait until November. (laughs) The family friendly affairs. Then you can do it. Yeah, once once uh, it's Thanksgiving season, you can take the horror games away. But yeah, yeah, no, that's part of the strategy. They take it away right before spoopy season, and then they put it on a sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Clever girl. Yeah, so it sounds like we were all in the the general area, nine to twelve hours, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think this is a game that I guess you could spend a lot of time like reading stuff uh, in backtracking a ton but i think it'll be pretty consistent for a lot of people so some personal histories with signalis and i think that it's worth mentioning personal histories with the games that very obviously inspired uh this game so i know for the two of you uh when we were talking about a game to have you both on the show i posed a couple of options and we we picked signalis but was it on your radar before that and uh, we've already mentioned resident evil and silent hill so What's your experience with those classic series as well? So never heard of Signalis prior to it being pitched. I think it's one of those games that I kind of heard under the radar, but hadn't really paid much attention to just because indie darlings get talked about, especially in the Discord servers that we're all part of from time to time. Mm -hmm. And if someone doesn't have a lot of time for more modern games or just uh, games outside of what I'm interested in general, didn't wasn't able to check it out. I'm happy I did, though. So thank you, Dave. Do appreciate that. Thank and uh, I think I sh- think Shane was on the final decision part of that process as well. So thank you, Shane. Mm-hmm. But in yeah, terms no of and yeah, in terms <laughs> of uh, Resident Evil and Silent Hill, uh, Resident Evil was probably the first PlayStation game I really got into. Not the first one I played. I think the first two were uh, Crash Bandicoot and a Power Rangers pinball game, which okay. were, were fine enough in their own right, but they didn't hook me. But uh, mm-hmm. Resident Evil certainly did with its. It's cinematic storytelling, uh, it's it's zombies, it's gore, it's horror, and that really got me into the survival horror genre, despite the fact that I'm a, a giant wuss and uh, do not like to play survival horror games to their completion. But <laughs> I had a game shark, so I found a way. Uh, uh-huh. So um, Silent Hill is just, it's it's part of that story, because I was into, quote, into survival horror, and... I was I got I think I got that game like when it first came out. And again, it's one of those games I quickly put down because I got too scared and I ran back to my uh, Metal Gear Solids and Castlevanias of the world. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, um, I suppose if anybody's familiar with uh, our show at all, because I, I feel like in the the Venn diagram of podcasts out there, I feel like we've got a probably a decent bit of crossover. So there's yeah, there's like yeah. there's at least one of you out there, I'm sure. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I, I may be a little bit of a Silent Hill fan, allegedly. I've allegedly. Heard. Yeah, yeah, I've heard uh, <laughs> uh, specifically Silent Hill 2. That's probably one of my favorite games of all time. And so uh, when I had heard that, you know, we, we had this as an option, I hadn't actually heard of it at all prior to us talking about doing this episode. And when we saw this as a, a potential topic to discuss, that pretty much swayed my decision as soon as I understood what this game was trying to do. And I, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, but uh, it is absolutely an homage, uh, perhaps in some places a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Mm. It, it was actually your episode on Retro Hangover about Silent Hill 2 that made me want to like pitch this game to you guys to play because it. I got a lot of the same enjoyment of thinking about the story. And of course, the gameplay is very similar um, and so when I heard uh, your episode about Silent Hill 2, I was like, huh, Signalis would, if they're up for it, Signalis would be a good fit because that was a really excellent episode, especially uh, when you guys talked about the story in that game. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you you were both up for it. For me, I had this on my radar before because there are some um, friends of the tube in my Discord server who really, really love this game. And have been talking sugar about it basically since it released uh, in 2022. So it's been on my radar. Of course, it's on Game Pass also. That that helps when you know a, a game is on Game Pass and people are like, hey, this is really good. It moves it up the priority list because I don't have to pay for it again, I suppose. I already paid for it, kind of. But yeah, it was on my radar. And um, I did want to make sure that I played Resident Evil Remake before I played this. So we're in this weird time zone where the Resident Evil remake has released for the people listening, but for you two, Chris and Shane, uh, I promise you it's there. It was a couple weeks ago, (laughs) but um, (laughs) I did want to play that game first before I played this. And I'm glad that I did because uh, the influence is on full display. Uh, There are outright references to the first Resident Evil game, Um, I I kind of think that I got like the mechanical side of Resident Evil with the storytelling of Silent Hill in Signalis. Um, And it inspired a ton of theory crafting in me, which like doesn't happen a lot Uh, in the last year. I could probably name like maybe three games that got me to really go crazy with the story. And this is one of them. So I had a really good time um, playing this but I had an even better time thinking about it after I was done putting these notes together, just trying to figure out what the hell's going on in the story. So do you guys have any kind of quick opening thoughts before we dig into the meat of the episode here? Um, I mean, you say this is influenced a lot by resident evil and silent Hill. And I, I mean, I think those influences are obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they're out front and in the open is very overt, uh, especially the way that they're storytelling, the way that uh, the game progresses, and I'm sure that we're going to get into, especially with spoilers. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the gameplay elements, uh, especially when it comes to inventory management, which I'm sure we're also going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think is kind of overlooked, and I think this is quite apt because you're on the episode with us lately, is 
the the way you navigate around a lot of you know the areas that you're in it there's a lot of similarities to metal gear solid as well mm. and i i haven't heard that mentioned but in terms of you know getting around the enemies there there are stealth mechanics and the way that your character moves even it, the way that your character performs actions is very similar to some tactical espionage I can't talk tactical espionage action mm-hmm. that uh, we have recently discussed in in real life a couple months ago. By the time this comes out, of course, yep. but uh, I, I'm I'm seeing I'm seeing some parallels, and I'm I'm quite shocked. I'm not I won't say shocked, but I'm a little surprised that 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 really hasn't been picked up on, especially with a lot of the 32 bit influence that is just overwhelmingly present. Mm-hmm. I can buy that. Yeah, I, I actually, that's that's an interesting take. I hadn't really thought about that, but I think the mgs angle is is interesting i could see where you could get that um for sure there there were definitely times where i i found myself uh stealthing about the various areas in a manner that i i wasn't expecting to um because if you think back to like well really any of the silent hill games um or even resident evil that's typically not an option i mean you can pull that off in some areas but a lot of the times you're kind of forced to deal with things um Mm -hmm. and in this game there are plenty of opportunities where if you're if you're good about it you can actually kind of make your way through pretty dangerous areas without uh you know getting the dreaded exclamation point Mm -hmm. (laughs) also have either of you played fear effect no uh no i don't think i have i have not played it either and that's why i ask i will say that the art style in the cutscenes is very reminiscent of the art style from fear effect which is also another mm. ps1 game okay so cool. i don't know about the gameplay i don't know if it borrowed anything from that but definitely the the art style in the cutscenes very much reminded me of what was going on in especially with the advertising and marketing for that game all right Um, Let us listen to a little bit of Signalis music, and then when we come back, we're going to set up the story. So in Signalis, you play as an android, uh, a, a, quote, replica android named Elster. You wake up out of a kind of pod uh, on a ship. The ship has crashed, and your companion named Ariane has gone missing. You, again, you play as an android. Uh, Elster has a very distinctive look, the way her face looks. Uh, she doesn't have feet. She has little weird goat feet uh, as she walks around, um, <laughs> just kind of... The, it stops at the ankle. That's that's how her legs look. Uh, so very obviously not human. Um, you're looking for this companion uh, on the planet that you uh, crash land on. Um, you learn as you go about different kinds of replica. Uh, Elster is not actually your name. It's the model of replica that you are. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it works as a name um, for Elster here. You get out of your ship. You go out onto the surface. You find a big hole in the ground off to a good start, uh, which leads to an office and uh, a computer screen that reads, Great holes are digged where Earth's pores ought to suffice. Things have learned to walk that ought to crawl. 
remember our promise. And uh, that quote, I had to look that up. It sounded cool to me. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's a quote. It is. It's from The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft. So we have a little bit of Lovecraft influence in uh, the story as well. You go down into this uh, station called S-23 Sierpinski. Uh, It's on this planet called Lang, which is a vocational station. The station is a vocational station for a war effort against something called the Empire. Um, So going through the station, looking for your companion, uh, Ariane. So I will open it up to you guys. I don't want to go deeper into what's going on in the story. Not that like we could spend the non-spoiler part talking about specifics because it's very dreamlike and weird in the first place. But what about this story like jumped out as being interesting to you guys? Uh, well, I think right off the bat, at least for me, the the mix of and this happens very, very quickly, but the the mix of sci-fi and very like overt, like almost occult themes um, that really stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, um, it's like one, one of my favorite movies is event horizon. And so like, that was one of the things I thought of <laughs> almost immediately with this is like, Oh, we're, we're going out into deep space and there's like weird eldritch shit happening. Like, Hmm. Okay. So <laughs> I, I don't know if like, maybe, maybe the developers are also fans of the movie. I'm not sure, but, uh, but yeah, that, that was like the first thing that popped up to me. Interesting. Two weeks in a row that Event Horizon has been brought up on the show. It was brought up many times in the Dead Space episode as well. So, (laughs) Well, it deserves it. It's a classic. (laughs) It sounds cool. I'll never watch it, but it sounds cool. (laughs) Oh, you should. It's totally cheesy now. It is. Yeah, you should. But I still love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Sam Neill just chews scenery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, such a good movie. And I'm gonna I'm gonna echo just what Shane said uh, right off the bat. This is a game that reminded me a lot of Event Horizon or Dead Space. I thought that was the direction this game was going to go. Uh, the game is the game struck me as immediately as something that was deliberately trying to be cryptic, mm-hmm. and yeah. that is definitely something that maintains throughout. And I, I have I have some criticisms towards that. Honestly, uh, it's especially while playing through it. The first time, I think there's a lot of things that I I don't like the way it does it or that I don't really like the way it does storytelling. It's definitely something that, for me at least, had to simmer a a little bit before things started clicking in my head. Maybe I'm completely off base and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But this is is something I looked at and I think this is a problem with a lot of indie games, in, in my opinion, whereas... Sometimes, like, I look at a game like Silent Hill or or Resident Evil, and I feel like the objective right off the bat in both those games is rather clear. So in Resident Evil, of course, the objective is to to get out of the mansion. In yeah. Silent Hill, it's to to find your daughter. And uh, the, the same thing, Silent Hill 2, is to to, to find Mary. And uh, not Mary. Uh, is it Mary? Mary's his wife. And I hope it's his wife. Not. I'm getting all confused now. But anyway, yeah. it's to find your dead wife. Um <laughs> And you find tidbits and extra lore around that stuff uh, within the game itself. Stuff to expand the world and and learn more about what's going on. Here, it kind of seems to be the inverse, where this game wants you to know about the world and what's going on. And I never really felt like I had any real true objective. And, and even the objective itself, which 
which is, you know, first thing is here's a photograph. I need to find my friend. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really seem as driving as a factor as what you got in either Resident Evil or Silent Hill. And it was more like, hey, here's all this stuff we want to tell you about everything else going on. This is what's more important. And that that's very hard to digest, especially right off the bat, I I think. I think that's a fair assessment. And I would say that it's a very, very fine line that a game has to walk to Agreed. to be purposefully and overtly cryptic without being like infuriatingly so. Mm-hmm. And I think there are times where this game does cross that line. Um, I was never like, I was, I was never really put off by it. I mean, right before we started recording this episode, I was, I was telling Dave that like part of the reason, you know, apart from the fact that I, I'm going to talk about this game in like five minutes, but, uh, that I really wanted <laughs> to finish it was because it, it really did kind of hook me. Um, and in a time in my life right now where like I, I do not have like free time that does not exist. Um, being able to, squeeze that in and get this game done. I was really happy about that because I wanted to see this through. And I can't always say that about some of the games that we play um, for the show. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, it was never so egregious that like, I was just like, man, I don't, you know what? I'm going to put this down. Like, I don't even know what this game is trying to do, but there are definitely some things. And honestly, they happen very early, like very very early that immediately kind of stuck out to me as like this seems nonsensical like this this feels like a like a a puzzle or a cryptic thing for the sake of being a puzzle with no like real reason for it to exist yeah i i think that i i i dug into it i it sounds like i dug the cryptic nature of the story and um kind of trying to put the pieces together or at least arrange them in an order that makes sense. Uh, maybe not the perfect way as we'll get into in the spoiler section, but I think I, I got into that more than the both of you, but I agree with Chris. It is a game that is better if you play it and let it simmer a little bit, let those thoughts bounce around in your head. Um, because I, I think there is a quality to this where I do think they walk that line of giving you pieces that don't fit together, but they're still like presented in a way where you want to know how they fit together, uh, mm. which is how I experienced this. Like I, I said earlier, this inspired a great deal of uh, theory crafting on my part, which is again, not something I do a whole lot. Uh, the last couple games that made me do that were Immortality, which that was like a huge thing for me trying to figure out what was going on in that story. And um, Returnal was the other one, big one, that kind of tells a story in a similar way where nothing really makes total sense ever, but they give you enough stuff that does that I'm then inspired to do the work uh, on my part. You guys are right, though. It is told in a extremely nonlinear, sometimes nonsensical order, not nonsensical in the way that like nothing will fit together in a way that's satisfying in my opinion, but they will present things to you way out of order. There's a kind of dreamy logic to the way the story is told and the way the the game progresses where like sometimes you'll just cut to a different time and place. And are you the same character during this? Who knows? Uh, we, we're not sure. And then you'll go back to a place where you were before and it's very different in a way that 
kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, but it will if you just kind of roll with it. They also obfuscate some of the information from you by using different languages in the game. Um, There's Mm -hmm. a lot of German text. There's a lot of uh, Chinese and Japanese, if I remember right, text. Um, Little things that'll flash on the screen. It'll just be a German word. And I'm like, well, I don't speak German, so... I guess I can go look that up later, but right now I don't know anything about that. So they are kind of hiding stuff from you in that way. It was developed by a German company, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Rose Engine is a, a German two-person development team. Yeah. Okay. Um, and something interesting I heard too, and this could be an outside inspiration, and I think I'm not taking credit for this. I think it was one hour, one decision, but mm-hmm. um, if it's not, I apologize to whoever I heard this from. I can't remember right off the top of my head here. But um, inspiration a little bit from Firefly, because if you read the mm. characters' names, they are both German and um, Asian. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's more like um, – I don't, I don't know if it's – I mean, you're in Korea. I don't know if it was uh, Korean or Japanese or Chinese or uh, which of the three languages. But it was definitely Asian-inspired. In, uh so having that mix up of languages is something I heard is what happened in Firefly. So I wanted to bring that up. And I think at least Shane would have some appreciation for that, or at least know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, that actually is something that I did pick up on just uh, particularly like the, the inclusion of Chinese as just being like a, you know, a, a companion language to, you know, English and what have you, it sort of just being integrated in that way. Yeah. That was, mm-hmm. that was very much reminiscent of that. Yeah, it's it's kind of set in one of these um, space future societies where um, we can't just take for granted that English is going to be used for everything. So you mm-hmm. see, um, I, I recognized Korean text on uh, the safes that you open in the game. They have uh, Korean warning labels on them. Um, so they are incorporating a lot of different stuff. And like I... Uh, have never been to the ISS, but I assume that they have different languages up there because it's an international thing, and you you're not just going to take that for granted. And I, I think the society in this setting also works the same way. Um, it's worth mentioning also, like we said, this is sci-fi. There's some eldritch uh, horror going on, or at least some um, some weird stuff. You know, we have a Lovecraft reference. You uh, you find the book The King in Yellow in that computer room at the beginning of the game. We also have this cool, like, space communism uh, setting as well. Like, mm-hmm. you are part of, quote, the nation, and you see propaganda posters for the nation. There are uh, lots of instruction manuals for people or how, how people are supposed to, like, conduct themselves under the rules of this nation. Um, you see discipline reports for people who broke the rules. Um, I, I think that this adds just a little cool bit of world building to uh, the station that because it, it, it's it's a it's a dimly lit space station we've been in places like that in video games before but this one kind of stands out a little bit yeah it, that's that's kind of explained if i if i get to um some spoilers here you know just cut me off but the alternative to the nation is is the empire right where mm-hmm. they talk about the empress and being able to manifest this uh bioresonance is what i think it's called in yep. order to like manifest stuff for her people. And the Empress is in charge of the Empire, um, and they are counter to the nation. So it sounds like you have two warring, essentially authoritarian factions going yeah. at each other. I, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to do like a, a political 
lesson here. I don't nationally necessarily think the nation is is communist. I mean, just in the name itself, with a with a nation centric kind of viewpoint, with fascism being more the national, uh, like the love of like nation building, blood and soil. Uh, when you mm-hmm. get to what a, what a nation is, and there's there's similar aspects to how fascism and communism has been carried out within you know our, our history. Uh, very, very similar aspects. So, I mean, either way, it's a totalitarian regime that's definitely in charge or that you're under or you're running around and the information you're getting. And of course, the other side is, is made to sound utopic, but who really knows? Because everything is propagandist, uh, you know, propagandist material mm-hmm. and everything you're reading is, is making both sides sound fantastic. At the end, they're at war and you're, that's kind of the back, backdrop to what you are doing as you're, you're, transversing throughout all these environments yeah so is that totally important a little bit but not really uh it it does provide some key backstory to is what's going on in in the key plot i think but it's it's not really the central focus no not the central focus at all but it is background um and it explains uh the conditions that people were living under in the station that you're going through. And I kind of latched on to communism as a way we'll talk about with the inventory uh, limit earlier, but, or later, but they gave, you know, a, a very communist sounding reason for why you have limited inventory, you know, sure. Yeah. 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 (laughs) yeah, Private property is a privilege (laughs) and stuff like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Shane, did you dig the, uh, this, the setting, the kind of more, the more grounded setting other than the sci-fi stuff? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think some of these things sometimes can be mostly just superfluous, but I think the inclusion of like the backstory about the the war and like the split between like the nation and the empire and kind of how that falls into place with how we end up with the characters that we end up with. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, technically it is integral to the story itself, but even if you didn't fully understand all of that at the very least it it provides a lot of really great sort of like window dressing slash like scaffolding for the rest of the game that otherwise if you didn't have that i think like you said earlier it would just be ah yes another generic derelict spaceship fantastic Mm -hmm. yeah put it this way we're talking about it here as part of the world building and setup for the story. But when we get to the spoiler section, I am not going to mention it one time. I have much grander things to talk about in the spoiler <laughs> section. The same. It's, it's very secondary to everything yeah. else that's going on. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think unless you guys have anything else about the story to bring up, you know, in this non-spoiler part, I think that we've said what we need to say, although I want to give a, um, a little piece of advice to new players um, if you start playing this game, which I, I hope you do, I think it's great. Don't worry if you don't understand what's going on in the story. Um, maybe take some notes. That was a big help for me. Uh, obviously, I'm taking notes for a podcast episode, but I'm, I'm imagining if I played this without note taking, all the stuff that would have fallen through the cracks and kind of hurt my understanding of the story. So I do think this is a game that benefits from putting in a little extra work to try and understand it, or maybe even playing it multiple times. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I, um, definitely. Yeah. Don't go into this thinking you're going to understand it all. It, it does require some, some reflection, some thought, maybe even watch an analysis video. Cause I watched an analysis video. There's no shame in that because putting no. everything together after one playthrough, especially if you don't have time 
uh, it'll help. It, it definitely helped me get at least a basis for my thought. And then I have more to add to it when we get there. But no shame. Yep. Yeah, no, definitely not. And I, you know, I, I will say that I absolutely did not piece together not not even just not everything, but probably a, a lot of what was going on um, in the story just kind of by my lonesome. So there there are other people that have done some really great legwork out there. Um, there's there's actually one in particular that I was looking at that is a very in-depth write up of this. Um, so feel feel free to go and and dive down that rabbit hole after you've played this at least once. I am excited to talk about the story more in the spoiler section because I do think this is a game where three different people could play it and come out with three interpretations of what's happening. It is one of those games, I think. Can't wait. I yeah. cannot wait. Yeah. Gonna be good. <laughs> So we kind of mentioned earlier this um, inspiration from PlayStation 1 and 32-bit eras of video games. Um, I think that this is most apparent uh, in the gameplay, of course, if you can, if you have the experience to relate back to those games. But in the visuals uh, of this, this gave me, this didn't, this doesn't look like the original Resident Evil. This looks much crisper and better, in my opinion, because it's, mm-hmm. you know, much more advanced technology we're working with here. But it is reminiscent of that. Um, it's worth mentioning that despite the inspiration from classic survival horror, um, it does not have the fixed camera angles that shift from room to room uh, like in those old games do. You always have this kind of third person isometric perspective. Uh, from the same angle every single time. So that Metal Gear Solid comparison uh, definitely fits in that for sure. It's basically the same camera angle. The PlayStation 1 aesthetic, I think, comes in in these first-person segments. They're quite short in comparison, Uh, maybe a short little thing, or maybe you'll go to interact with an object and it will zoom in up close in first-person where you can mess with a computer and the floppy disks or something like that. Um, so I think that aesthetic is here, but it's definitely like, don't expect this to look like a PlayStation one game. I, I do think I actually would kind of push back. I think going back to the fear effect visuals, if you go to a PS one cell shaded game, okay. it has a lot of the feelings on that. Now the pre-render backgrounds, of course, the backgrounds themselves, I think, yeah, definitely they, they're, they're going to look a lot better, but they're definitely inspired. You know, the resolutions are going to be higher. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting though, is that the default setting isn't 60 hertz it's 24 hertz if you go into the options menu and you go to Hmm. settings which i I believe that's the cinematic uh frame rate when you're filming a movie yeah yeah now you can select uh 60 hertz or 59 hertz and i think it's 23 hertz or 24 hertz but the default is 24 hertz and i think that's that's really interesting um that that would be an option i can't figure out why that is. I tried to really rack my brain as to why I changed the resolution. I changed well, changed the uh, frame rate. I didn't see much of a difference. And I mean, my PC at least can handle that. 
because uh, this game isn't very demanding. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think if it does anything to make it more cinematic to have those lower frames per sec, uh, you know, lower frames per second, that you know, it kind of does enhance that PS One feel at least. And you could probably bump this up to perhaps maybe a Dreamcast feel if you really wanted to, but I don't think it's as clean as what the Dreamcast was doing at the time because there are a little bit more jank- there's a little bit more jankiness to the to the polygons that are in there. Uh, the shading with on the polygons themselves is a, is a little rougher than what it possibly could be today, and that's very deliberate and very intentional, mm-hmm. which is why you're you know saying this is not something the PlayStation can do. No, absolutely it couldn't. It looks way better than that, but. This game is meant to be that nostalgia blanket that reminds you of the PS1 days. This is what if you're if you don't play PlayStation and you did, but you don't play PlayStation today, this is what your mind is going to tell you that a PlayStation 1 game looked like. Yeah. I think they did a really good job of creating that. They also have a, a CRT filter you can throw over uh the the visuals, which I didn't, but it's oh. cool that it's there. No, yeah, I, 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 I tried would not. that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it did not seem playable. I, <laughs> I I generally don't like those fabricated CRT filters for that reason. Like it mm-hmm. looks cool, like just looking at the screen, but actually trying to play with that is no bueno. It doesn't feel like the way it was designed to be played. Uh, with no, not being all. able to recognize the items and stuff like that. But it's cool that it's there. Um yeah. Uh, also worth noting that there's not a whole lot of UI while you're playing. It's very clean um, screen. And then you go into one of those uh, old Silent Hill style, Resident Evil style menus. Like that's where you see your health is on those menus. Um, if you get hit, Elster will kind of walk uh, in a laborious way. Um, if you get hit a bunch, she'll real really struggle to walk. So you can see that, um, but you don't actually see a health bar or they go to those color coding blue means you're at full health in this game and then yellow mm-hmm. and then red, etc. Um, so it's, it's a really clean um, experience as far as that goes too, which I, I think, I think helps a lot. I mean, it's not, it's not dead space uh, with the way that that game handles UI, but it is still um, clean uh, lets you focus on what's going on, what's in the rooms with you. Cause you do have to sleuth around a little bit to find all the stuff you can interact with. And if you play in easy mode like I did, then you have plenty of health. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so did I. Oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Love to uh, always support people playing on easy mode. Uh, don't even need to give a reason. Just fucking do it if you want to. Because I know I'm I here to experience the story. Yeah, yeah not yeah. not get frustrated getting murdered. Yeah. This is a uh, horror game. Um, that is the genre that I would place it in. Would you guys say that this game is scary? Did it ever get scary, tense, anything like that? No, no. <laughs> um, I, I think it has it has a lot of atmosphere going for it, and I appreciate that a hundred percent. But mm-hmm. there was never a point where I felt fear at all. Yeah, same. Yeah, I think it's mostly the top down perspective that's not going to allow for that. Uh, they come really close to the beginning, I think, when you're just starting to figure everything out and you get one of the first displays of the enemies and you start to get, you know, kind of the notion that something is not right there. They have mm-hmm. some very, very on the nose imagery that's going on during those sections. 
And of course, it's gore, a lot of body horror. That That's kind of what I feel like they're going for. But eventually, like things that should be scary, I felt became more frustrating. And you know, we'll get to that in the gameplay uh, when it comes to enemy placement. But because the enemies were just more obstacles that you're you're supposed to avoid, I feel took away from a lot of the fear. While the atmosphere was fantastic, it's more of it didn't feel like the game was necessarily even trying to be scary. It was just trying to make you uneasy. Yeah, and I think, and this this may just be me, but the the other part of what makes it not genuinely frightening to me, honestly, is is the the perspective. And yeah. that might sound weird, maybe I don't know, but the only games that I can think of where I was genuinely frightened by something, not not just like ooh that's weird or like man that sure is creepy looking, but like genuinely like oh shit like <laughs> those are all three dimensional games and whether that's first person is a hundred percent scarier in my opinion, but even just like behind the shoulder third person three dimensional is mm-hmm. going to have in my opinion, a much bigger impact in, in that particular arena. Like if you have this isometric view, I know that there are several other horror games that have this um, because they're, you know, indie titles and they want to go like the 2d route. And I will never find that actually scary um, just because I think the, the realness factor just isn't there for me. Yeah, I think that camera angle plays into it because you, if you think about games that games that have these third person but fixed camera um, that shifts, that's the developer choosing what they want you to see in each room. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, you you see everything in a room. Um, as you know, maybe you have to move up to a, a higher portion of the screen, but you see everything. Sometimes enemies will pop out of the floor or something like that, but that's about all you're going to get. So I do think the camera angle plays into it. But um, I agree. I think it was you, Chris, that said, I don't think this game's trying to scare the shit out of you. Mm. It's trying to give you a a tense but very atmospheric um, experience. That's mainly what it's trying to do. Um, The things you see might be unsettling, uh, not to spoil some visual things that happen with the levels that you're in, but... When I first saw some of those, I was like, that's weird and creepy, but I like it. I'm not scared of it, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of gore and body horror, as you said, as well. The enemies have awesome designs. They all look creepy and weird, but they are all kind of lumbering and goofy to a point where I'm not scared of them. I can, I'm, I'm fucking Barry Sanders. I'm juking them out. I'm running through hallways. <laughs> like, I'm not scared of the enemies in in a way that, like, when the first necromorphs pop out in dead space, I was like, Oh, what is that? Uh, Oh, it's coming right at me. Like that. Um, nothing like that really in this game. Um, this game does some cool other things though. Like there's a lot of visual glitching that goes on. And I think that the sound design throughout the game is like the real winner for setting up, uh, atmosphere, especially, uh, remember like those enemies where you have to tune your radio and, I love radios. those ones. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. awesome. Um yeah. because it's it's really unnerving. It's a I don't want to hear it. It's a, a it's a droning like sound that it bothers you. So mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um other enemy sounds, environmental sounds, um really good stuff just to set up this really cool atmosphere. Yeah, uh, 
I like what you talk about the glitching. Yeah. Uh, because I thought the glitching was was really cool. And that's another one of those elements that lets you know that, hey, there's more to what's going on than mm-hmm. what you're seeing. Because why would an enemy glitch out? I also thought at that time, the first time I saw it was, oh, shit, Crimson Heads. Because I <laughs> fucking hate Crimson Heads. And... <laughs> oh, man. I bet you really liked some of the mechanics in this game. <laughs> yeah. Um... But I, that was something I kind of saw coming, uh, because uh, there's no reason for it to glitch out unless something is going to accompany it. And yeah, I, I have, I was, I was right. I'm so, um, but yeah, that, that is part of the unsettlement right there. That is part of the unease is letting you know that, Hey, something's not right here, not just in the world that you're in, but probably with the thing you just quote killed. I also think that the music in this game is really good for setting up atmosphere as well. Uh, You have a lot Mm -hmm. of like the really unsettling industrial music that, you know, combat horror game, combat music that, you know, the grinding and the pounding and all of that stuff. Um, But this game's music, what I'll remember from it is the, the soft uh, reserved like piano that plays in a lot of places, like in the save rooms, or important mm-hmm. story rooms, maybe while you're doing a puzzle or something like that during cutscenes. Um, it's really heavy on this, like really soft, sad, melodic uh, piano stuff. And I thought that was um, excellent. Done by uh, 1000 Eyes and Cicada Sirens. Those are the two musicians, groups, I'm not sure, that are credited with the soundtrack. Yeah, and and not to take away from what they've done or or besmirch it in any way because i think it's it is very well done and i i i I dug it um but the reason i dug it is because this this is probably one of the biggest parts of this game where i'm just like y'all just ripped off silent hill that's that's (laughs) that's what happened here like and that's what i was saying is the the music i think for me was one of the spots one of the few it's not many but this one was particularly notable where i feel like we crossed from like respectful homage to other games to just like we basically just kind of copied silent hills homework a little bit Hmm. see i don't i don't care because Konami's not doing anything with that Silent Hill homework. So let someone else do something with that Silent Hill homework. Let them uh-huh. rip it off. Like, I get that as an homage. It's an homage uh, to Silent Hill. And the people who are going to get the most appreciation out of it are probably people who have played Silent Hill. But again, like I said with earlier with the visuals, this is how you remember it looking like and you remember it sounding like if you have not played it in a very long time. So for people who may not have played Silent Hill in the past five years, like you and myself, Shane, this is going to be like, oh, yeah, this is like a giant memory nostalgia bomb. And it hits all the right notes. Mm -hmm. And I I see you wrote this in your notes here, Dave. Uh, When they played Moonlight Sonata, I -hmm. lost my shit because (laughs) I was like, yes, this is this is straight up from Resident Evil. I love this. And then would incorporate other classical tunes into it for various plot points, mm-hmm. which I, I loved as well uh, in a stark contrast to the more industrial sounds that you would hear uh, generally throughout the game. And yeah, is it a little on the nose? I will agree with you, Shane. Yes, it is. But again, I'm fine with someone doing something that is a little too on the nose to Silent Hill because we're, 
you're not going to get it otherwise. Let's, let's be real. <laughs> and I'm, I'm okay with it. No faith in the blooper team with the Silent Hill 2 remake. Not, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I think Show that's me. the smart position to take. Yeah. Kind of continuing along those uh, lines of inspiration and uh, maybe copying a little bit of homework, uh, we'll talk about the gameplay in Signalis. Um, This is very, very inspired uh, by those games. I mean, like I said, I played Resident Evil Remake, and then three days later, I played Signalis. And I was like, yep, this is the same game, basically. The (laughs) gameplay is exactly the same. Uh, you, You run around. I mean, the only thing that's different is I'm not struggling with I'm not struggling with tank controls if I'm playing the original Resident Evil. You can, you can. play with tank yeah. controls if you're a fucking weirdo. I'm saying I don't know why anyone would choose that. Yeah, you it can. It does not work here. No. It, there's there's I I've heard the um the the rationale that the the tank controls and the fixed camera perspective work together in tandem, but this doesn't have that camera perspective. So why why would you do that to yourself? Um anyway, it is third person uh, gameplay. You're running around, um, picking up stuff, picking up things to solve puzzles, doing a little bit of combat. We will uh, dig into all of those a little bit. But first, um, let's talk about that inventory limit since it's already been brought up. You are limited to six items in this game, which uh, was kind of the hard mode in Resident Evil 1, uh, if you play as Chris and... Uh, they do give you a little bit of diegetic explanation for this. Again, that uh, they call it the rule of six, that private property is a privilege and that each person may only have six pieces of property. Uh, everything else belongs to the nation. That diegetic reason doesn't help when you're frustrated by the amount of things you can carry. But I did think it was kind of cool that they were like, we're going to tie this genre staple mechanic into the story a little bit. I hate uh, it. <laughs> I was about yeah I was just say I hate it I hated it so much like it, it, it was the it was probably the biggest detractor in this game mm. for me and, and I and actually possibly one of the only ones now that I really think about it the amount of forced backtracking that you have to do because of this six item limit mm-hmm. just feels so bad and and not only that but there are there are some items that frankly should have just been just functions like should have just been something that was mapped to a button for you like the thing that immediately comes to mind where where i can't believe we're we're circling back to the fucking duct tape mod but like the flashlight why is the and according to the description in game the shoulder mounted flashlight right. why is that something that takes up a space in your six space inventory mm-hmm. because like, that's personal, personal property. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, it sucks so much. <laughs> and the fact that you only have one like accessory equip slot. So you really can't feasibly carry more than one of those, even though there are plenty of times where you really want to like having, having a flashlight and like, uh, you know, a good, four of those like stun rods or something to get yourself prepped to just take out some fools mm-hmm. like that would be really nice 
And I know, I know there's like, there's got to be at least one person. Maybe it's one of you. Well, it's not Chris. He hates it too, but maybe it's you, Dave. I don't know. But like, there's somebody out there that is going to make the argument of like, yeah, but that's like part of the mechanic. Like that's, you got to make hard choices, bro. And I'd be like, well, that's like your opinion, man, because I, I hate it. I, I feel like it's a really bad mechanic. Um, I think limited inventory, extremely limited inventories like that are not great anyway, but you actually made a really good point there in that this is equivalent to the air quotes hard mode for Resident Evil. Like, I feel like that says something in and of itself that maybe, maybe we should have thought about this one a little bit more. And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if either of you saw this, but I could have sworn that I saw something posted about the devs considering changing that limit i didn't see that i've heard that too i can't remember where um but i've heard that i'm not going to say that that's accurate or true but i i recall hearing it that seems like which could mean nothing so like you guys said you both played on easy that seems like it would be a very um logical thing to do is easy mode lets you carry eight items or something like that but Mm -hmm. eight would have been perfect Eight, in, in the way this game was designed, it would have been perfect. And it's not the entire game for me. When this game started out for probably about, the, I would say, the first quarter of it, it wasn't it wasn't that annoying. It was very similar to Resident Evil. Like, do you want to pick up the, the health or do you want to hold on to bullets? And yeah. it's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll hold on to the bullets because I won't need health if I kill the things that are in mm-hmm. front of me. Makes sense. You know, offense better than defense. Uh, but then you start getting later into the game and there isn't a real natural progression to the way that you pick things up and the way that they're applied to puzzles. Right. And that's that's when it started irritating me. That's when I was like, I if this had two more slots, because when it comes to your weapons, the weapons that you have are like you have a pistol uh, for most of the game. You have a pistol and a shotgun. Mm-hmm. And there's other weapons you get as well. But for the majority of the game, those are the two weapons you have a choice from. But. Both of those weapons have limited ammunition. The pistol takes about two to three shots to take anything down. So you need to have reserve ammunition on top of that. So those take up two slots. So not only do you you have your weapon, you have your reserve ammunition, you're probably going to want a health. And you're Mm -hmm. going to run into other things you're going to pick up. And there's three different health items that you can pick Mm -hmm. up. So there's not just like a green herb and a red herb. You have like... The green, the red, and the blue herb, which, I, yeah, much like Resident Evil, it's very similar, where you can combine one with another one to get, like, an insta-heal, um, but you can't combine it with the other one. Um, it's – it's it just – your inventory gets bogged down really quick, especially if you're trying to pick things up. And then later in the game, if you perform certain actions in certain rooms, you can't go back to those rooms to get items. So, like, the item management, especially with the puzzles – you picking up items, realizing you're full, having to navigate back to a save room to dump it off in a crate, which is a universal crate, much like Resident Evil One. It's not like a specific crate. Right. Uh, you, it's like a. It's like a. That would have been a disaster can, if there were individual. Oh, that, <laughs> oh my god, that would have been horrible. Thankfully not. But yeah. um, yeah, thankfully, but that that became like a gameplay loop in and of itself. Is find the items, go back to the room, progress a little bit, go back to the room. Progress a little bit, think about what you've seen, pick up the items you need, use the items, go back to the room to pick up the items you might need for a boss fight. It, it just became it became almost more trouble than it was worth towards the later half, particularly 
when when the puzzle items became more and more spaced out. And you know, thankfully, I was using a guide. Yeah. Yes, and I very say, and, numerous. And numerous. Like there are several puzzles in the back half of this game that require you to have a dozen or more items to complete it. And yes. Yeah. So no, I I I 100% agree. I would also I just as a blanket statement, I don't think this mechanic adds anything of value to the game. Like to me, this was almost like slavish like uh adherence to the sort of like traditional mechanics because of how heavily inspired this game is by games like resident evil and things like that i mean this this mechanic is is pure resident evil actually so i don't even think it needed to be there and honestly this game would have been Maybe not half as long, but you definitely could have shaved a couple of hours at the very least off of this game's playtime just by allowing the player to just carry everything that you find. Like there's, it adds nothing of value. Yeah. The inventory limits force you to make meaningful choices about the stuff you carry. But I do agree that this game takes it a little bit too far with, um, number one, like you said, a basic loadout for going out exploring includes a weapon because like you can you can run around and avoid most enemies, but not all of them. You mm-hmm. do have to kill some stuff. So you have to take a weapon. Um, you you should probably take a health item. I did not carry extra bullets with me because I wanted the extra space and I was like dedicated Same. to not fighting stuff when I didn't have to. Um but you're probably carrying a key that you picked up because it might unlock something. And then you're going to pick up some stuff along the way and you run out of uh, space really quickly. So that sends you back to the box to drop off your stuff. Uh, the boxes are usually in save rooms. And this statistic at the end kind of told the story for me for how often this loop is happening. They tell you when you beat the game how often you save time between saves and my average time between saves in Signalis was six minutes. So that means mm-hmm. every right. six minutes, I'm probably in there because I'm bringing items back to the box. And yep. the other thing is, this game in particular, more so than I remember from the other ones that use this kind of mechanic, will give you items for puzzles, but then those puzzles will not be... Maybe they'll be a couple hours later. Uh, or yeah. there's a couple you pick up early in the game that you don't use until the very end of the game. So I got in this situation where I was like, I'm going to fill my inventory up with stuff I might need, or I'm going to go see the puzzle, be like, oh, maybe I need to bring the that Russian doll I found. Go back to the item box, get the doll. Oh, I'm missing a part of the Russian doll. It doesn't work. Go back to the item box, put the doll back, and then go explore some more. And it just... There's, it's just a little bit off. The one saving grace I will say is that item boxes are plentiful. They're always nearby. Like it's always a minute or less to run back to one, but you're still running back to them constantly. And it's just, it, it happens a little bit too much. And I do think that like giving you two more inventory slots would have fixed a lot of it, especially late in the game. You mentioned that there are several puzzles late where you need six items to solve the puzzle and you can only carry six items. So I'm either going to have to make multiple runs to the puzzle to drop stuff off, or I'm going to go there with no weapons, no health, nothing. 
which which is doable but not ideal because you know, what if there's what if something busts out of the ceiling or something like that? Yeah. If yeah. all the enemies too, if if some of them didn't respawn, I think it would be more tolerable because the the knowledge that every single enemy can respawn. It almost makes it so I don't even want to kill them unless I feel like I absolutely have to. And there's a method to completely dispose of them. But knowing if like you, if you I, get like yeah. what, maybe nine of those items. And yeah, the whole they're game. so Not limited. Yeah. They're, yeah. So you have to put them in very specific spots. You know, you're going to go back and forth. And unless you're using a guide, you're not going to know that those are the spots you're really going to have to focus on, because why would you? It's not it's not going to be inherent unless you start taking down the enemy over and over and over yeah. again. So I, I would say the item box frequency is a lot easier. And I think it might be because just learning how to play the game more, uh, this, that second half and, and navigating back to the item box to do what I needed to do was was far more tolerable than it was at the beginning. But I, I think that's just because, too, it's like at the beginning, I'm like, is this game, what does this really expect me to do this? And yeah, it, it, you get conditioned to it, but it's still not something I really enjoy. Yeah. I I, I want to be like I didn't hate this as much as it sounds like you guys did, but I I'm not like if they were like we're patching in and we're raising it to eight, I would be like okay cool I'm not mad about this at all. I don't think the game is absolutely. Um, I don't think this is like the pillar that this game stands up on or something. It'll come crumbling down <laughs> if you remove the inventory limit or something like that. So I like when I was playing, I was not that annoyed by it, but when I'm thinking about it and kind of discussing it, I'm thinking back to, yeah, I did save every six minutes because that's how often I'm running to take an item back to the box. Cause the next room I go in is going to have more items to pick up. They're probably going to be important. I want to have them. So I better make room in advance. And it's, it's just like, that's not what I want my attention to be focused on uh, when I'm playing this game. But it right. was a focus for sure. You become snake. Just fade everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess just to add my sort of, I guess, final thought onto that, I, I do really despise this mechanic, as I think I've already sort of elaborated on. But the thing that really compounded that issue is what Chris mentioned about any enemy that has been downed has the potential to stand back up at any random moment and attack you again and it made that and by the way my average save was about eight minutes i think is what it was it was like eight and a little bit of change mm -hmm. um so in this in the same neighborhood so roughly every eight minutes i was hitting a save spot and uh that run back is is always just frankly a pain in the ass because not only do you have to run back after you've seen like a puzzle and you're like oh right i need this but my inventory's full or you go into a room and you're like man i really wish i could pick up those shotgun shells but i've got this random bullshit that i picked up that i don't know what it's for yet and you have to go back and that's bad enough on its own but then having the possibility of stuff just standing back up again wasting more of your ammo or health if you get hit um yeah, it just it doesn't it doesn't feel great. Is it a deal breaker? Obviously not. Um, no, it's not know, a deal breaker. I played through the whole thing, and overall, I enjoyed my experience. But like, yeah, the game would be better better for it if that was. I won't say necessarily removed, but 
but tweaked a little mm-hmm. bit. I think even those extra two slots would probably be enough because it's it's interesting actually that Chris, you, I think you were the first one that mentioned that. But now that I think about it, you're you're absolutely right. I always felt like I was just one or two items shy of like doing what I wanted to do. Yeah, it would also be helpful if you could drop items and pick them back up at a later time. The only mm. way to free up a spot without going back to the item box is to either like use a health item when you don't need one, um, or you can destroy uh, ammo. And I found myself destroying a lot of pistol ammo to make room for a key that I just found, uh, because that was the more convenient thing to do. And I wasn't fighting stuff that much anyway. Um, one uh, thing that I'm glad they didn't bring from Resident Evil 1 is you can save as many times as you want. And I was, after mm-hmm. after oh, playing yeah. that, I was like, thank God, I'm, I'm going to save 100 times. <laughs> and I probably did save 100 times. I, I get, you know, the added tension of like, I only have two ink ribbons left. I can only save two more times until I find more. But that just doesn't work with like I said in the Resident Evil episode, I have so much free time, but I still can't just like play a game and, you know, stop when I want to stop every single time. Sometimes things happen and I need to take care of something uh, or, you know, I need to eat dinner or something and I don't want to just leave my PC running uh, or something like that. So I'm glad you can save as many times as you want in this. The game also yeah, mocks you if you say if, no. Yeah. If you Oh yeah. If you go to save and it asks you, uh, do you want to save? If you say no, it'll be like, mm, you're gonna regret that. Which is kind of funny. Yep. <laughs> that creeped me out actually. That was kind yeah. of scary. Like you will regret this. Oh fuck you, I'm gonna save that. <laughs> I suppose I will. Yeah. Um we we've kind of talked about fighting enemies or not fighting them. I already said I, I chose not to fight most of them. Part of that is because um, I don't think that I think the combat is designed to be the way it is, which is not super fun to fight stuff. It's, again, very uh, reminiscent of the games that inspired it. You press a button to raise your weapon. You can aim with the right stick. Uh, The auto aim is is decent. You press another button to fire, but you are kind of like planted in place when you're shooting. It's it's just not fun to fight stuff. So I stopped fighting stuff. I kind of took the opposite approach. Um, also, I, I never once destroyed any ammunition because the, the hoarder in me was just like, no, I might, I might need that later. <laughs> and then, of course, I ended the game with like 30 extra pistol bullets and a bunch of other garbage, but you know, it's fine. Um, but no, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't engage with every enemy that I came across. There were definitely times where, well, actually, most of the times that I purposefully didn't engage, it was kind of out of frustration, actually, more than anything, where I was just like, you know, I can't be fucked to deal with this right now. I'm just going to kind of sneak through because I've got shit to do and I don't want to deal with you guys. Um, it was less about like, you know, uh, survival or conserving resources. And that's probably a byproduct of playing on easy a little bit. But, um, but no, for the most part, I, I did engage in most combat scenarios and yeah, it wasn't fantastic. And I don't know if this was an easy mode thing. Maybe somebody can keep me honest on this, but the sort of like auto lock on that the guns do was actually 
kind of janky and a little detrimental in some scenarios. It, it wasn't perfect for sure. I played on normal, but yeah, that that auto lock on was. Sometimes you'd you'd pull up your gun, it, you it would clearly not be focusing on the enemy it's supposed to, or like it's pointing at the enemy, but the little reticule's not there, so it's not going to hit them if you shoot. So put it down, mm-hmm. pull the gun back up, and now it works, and now I can shoot. Yeah, there were definitely a number of times where I got smacked in the face by an enemy because <laughs> I was trying to properly aim at it. I do like the fact, though, that they have the sort of like shrinking reticle um, mechanic where like if you wait long enough, if you're able to hold that aim long enough, you'll actually be more effective with your shot, mm-hmm. which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I think what both of you have said here, I, I fully agree with. What I look at with the aiming mechanic, and again, this is going, I'm, I'm going to say Metal Gear Solid here again, because you have the laser pointer, which is not something you had in Resident Evil 1 or 2, to my recollection. No idea on 3. I, I still haven't played 3. But it, it did remind me a lot, once again, of Metal Gear mm-hmm. Solid. And the shooting in Metal Gear Solid is also equally as awkward, except you only have to press one button as opposed to two. Um, of course, there's more ways to dispose of enemies in Metal Gear Solid. You have a melee attack, which you do here as well, but it doesn't really do anything. I think you can shove them down and kick their head in, which is a, uh, I think it's a Silent Hill thing. But in terms of the combat itself, it being as inconsistent as it was, it just gave me a false sense of expectations. And this became like extremely irritating and annoying on the final boss. Mm. Because I would be running around and I'm used to you know, the, the character just automatically pointing at it. Well, I wasn't 100% used to it, but there was some expectation it would lock on and it didn't lock on. But the aiming reticule, yeah, I love the aiming reticule. And I try to get as close as possible because it also did extra damage. And that would conserve ammo, especially when you're running around. As, as I did, much like you, Dave, putting the extra ammo in the bin... Uh, and just using it to reload when I got back to an items, item box because they are so frequent. Uh, but you still want to conserve ammo because I think it can only hold nine, nine rounds in a magazine. So if it takes two to three shots to take down an enemy, you're going to need to be replenishing fairly often. But other than that, yeah, combat is a little bit awkward. If you have the stun rods, it's a little bit better. But stun rods are hit, hit or miss. They're far more frequent than the flares, which is nice. And they're they're more frequent than than other special items, but I, I didn't find myself carrying stun rods around that much just because I didn't want to get that close to the enemies. If I'm being perfectly honest, it's always better to fight from a distance. And mm-hmm. actually it's just it's just better to avoid them because most of the time it, it is easy to avoid them and just not get into combat. Yep, exactly. Uh the other piece of the puzzle for the gameplay is are the puzzles. The um, adventure gamey type puzzles, again, taking from the survival horror inspirations, uh, you pick up items that you're not sure when you're going to use it. Like I said, you know, pick up a Russian doll, a uh, nesting doll, or you'll pick up a uh, a little bird or something like that, or a floppy disk. And you don't know when you're going to use it, but you know you will use it for a puzzle at some point. Um, I thought that overall, these were a little less adventure logic-y in some ways. Uh, I found myself like naturally figuring them out a lot more than I did in uh, Silent Hill 2 or in Remake or something like that. 
I do think that these puzzles do get into a little too much of like, I solve this puzzle and I get a key and then I go unlock a door and in that room there's another key and I take that key and I unlock a mailbox and in the mailbox is another key and we get into some of those orders of operations a little too often, but I will take that over seeing a puzzle, looking at the items I have and going, I have no fucking idea, which is how it happened (laughs) in uh, some of the other games that inspired this one. No, a hundred percent. I, I don't typically say this, uh, but I, I actually really liked the puzzles in this game. Nice. I, I really did. Um, I, I too solved, I actually didn't use a guide for this game at all, by the way. Um, nice. which is oh, nice. rare, honestly, but I felt that the solutions to the puzzles were so natural that I didn't, I never felt like I needed it. Um, which, was a honestly a great feeling like the fact that I could get through this whole game and th- this isn't like me patting myself on the back. It's more of just a testament to, I think the design really that I was able to get through all of these puzzles and figure them out without really getting stumped too hard, but also they weren't brain dead easy. I think they really hit that sweet spot where you really feel good about solving the puzzles on your own um, so I, I actually really applaud Rose Engine for that one. I, that's a really hard one to pull off because even mm-hmm. one of my favorite games, Silent Hill 2, playing that on the harder difficulties also ups the difficulty of the puzzles <laughs> and it turns them yeah. into these complete bullshit nonsensical things <laughs> that no sane person would figure out. Um, yeah. and fortunately this game doesn't do that. I am going to echo Shane. Uh, once nice. again here and i i did use a guide so i'm not i don't have the big brains that shane has but <laughs> um there there were a couple i was like yeah this is kind of stupid like one with the uh there's one involving planet placement being in specific locations when other are specific mm. locations and then you, you had to get an item to place in something and then use another item to where the planets are i'm like i don't like this but when it came to like radio puzzles and the frequencies because you have this radio device you can tune Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier to fight one of the enemies, which I thought was one of the more clever ways to kill an enemy, which you just tune the frequency to whatever it displays on screen three times and they die. That was cool. But uh, the radio puzzles, uh, specifically one where you have to triangulate a signal in order to get uh, to solve a puzzle or a location of it and some other item. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. I thought the safes and the way you figured out how to get into the safes. I think that was appropriate. Um they give the player a lot of agency and a lot of leeway to figure things out. Uh, The only other one I think I had a problem with is when you had to match the names. Maybe I'm recalling a different thing, but you had to pick the name with the ailment of a specific, uh, a specific person. And that's Mm -hmm. just because you had to start reading the notes and it was all from a computer and all this stuff like that. I don't want to go too much into it because it is a puzzle, but, um, a lot of there, most of them were very, very, very intuitive, and I yeah. really did appreciate that. The puzzles are definitely a highlight of this game, especially for survival horror fans. They're some of the strongest I've ever seen in a video game. Yeah, I, I agree. They're good. Um, I did use a guide for two or three puzzles, and I did um, use a guide to just give me a little help with what I should carry with me when I start a new area. Like I'll I'll look at a guide and the first, you know, sentence of the guide I was looking at will say, okay, 
bring, you know, whatever combination of guns, ammo, and health you want to bring, and then also bring this one key item that's been in your box for four hours. Take it out. You might need it. And I that's a, a little help um, that I appreciated because sometimes those items go unused for so long that I forgot that they were there uh, without scrolling through all the stuff in the um, in the item box. So puzzles are good. Also, just a quick shout out to the map. This game has a great map, um, just like the map in Silent Hill 2, uh, where it shows you doors that you have not interacted with yet, doors that are locked, doors that cannot be opened. Um, it shows you if you picked up all the items in a room. It's just it's good. Real good map. It's it is it is really good when it's there. <laughs> yeah, when it's there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one, one last thing on the puzzles though, that I did want to mention yeah. is that while I think the, the design of the puzzles is fantastic, I, it did for me, it, some of them, or actually I would say maybe even a majority of them tended to fall into that sort of like adventure gamey category of like, this is a puzzle because we wanted to do a puzzle. Not that it necessarily makes much sense. You right, know? right. Um, but that's, I mean, that's, I guess, kind of nitpicky because if you're getting into a game like this, you kind of are expecting that. Um, but it is something that I, I did notice that some of them were very much like integrated into the world in a sensible fashion. And then some of them were just like very outlandish things for the sake of having a puzzle, it felt like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I but agree. Minor gripe. All right, so um, I think that this is a good point to give some wrap-up thoughts and recommendations before we get into that uh, sweet, sweet spoiler section for this Signalis episode. Mm. So, uh, guys, the question here at the end is, um, if you have any wrap-up thoughts, give those, but who would you recommend Signalis to? Uh, I'll go ahead and take that one first. Um, Well, my wrap-up thoughts, I guess, if it wasn't already evident, is that I would highly recommend playing this game. Um, It it doesn't even though even though i struggled to to fit it in that's a personal problem but it it really doesn't <laughs> ask a lot of time from you which is always nice um you can reasonably get it done in like 9 to 10 or 11 hours and uh it's a it's a it's an enjoyable and satisfying experience um to who i would recommend i would say that if you are a fan of you know, those uh, old school like survival horror games like Resident Evil or Silent Hill or, you know, Clock Tower or any of those things. Definitely give this a try um, because I do not think you'll be disappointed. And even if you have like just a passing interest in really any of the things that this game is trying to do or is, is uh, you know, espousing as a as a major part of it, be it the the sort of sci-fi or the like the futuristic sort of dystopia or the tinges of eldritch horror or any of those things i really think there's a lot here to enjoy so um so so big big recommend on my part i i would just go with your standard recommend uh because i do think there are some flaws in this game as we mentioned with the item inventory system uh that's very redundant what i just said there but the inventory system is 
is going to turn a lot of people off. Some people are not going to want to hang with it and it is going to cause a lot of backtracking. So I'm just going to stay with the recommend. And who would I recommend this to? I, I would recommend this to definitely fans of the original Resident Evil and Silent Hill, especially just fans of the PlayStation era. And if you haven't played a game from that time and you remember it fondly, you're going to definitely in- encounter Signalis here. And you're going to get that warm rush of nostalgia. And you're going to be like, this is what these PlayStation games used to look like, used to play like, even though it's significantly better. Uh, this is what your imagination is going to tell you what these games are. And in that case, yeah, Signalis is going to deliver. I certainly had a good time with it. Uh, I, I don't walk away with it from it thinking it's a fantastic game. Uh, it is a very good game. There's definitely a lot of effort and love and attention to detail that was put into it. And uh, also the story that we were about to get into, it, it, it takes a couple times, it takes some simmering. But once it clicks, it's one of those things that, much like the Silent Hill series, goes a lot deeper than you might think it does and does some very imaginative and fun things. So mm-hmm. check out Signalis. Yeah. Yeah, obviously fans of uh, the games that inspired Signalis should check this game out. And then I do want to just make, you know, stamp that home. If you like games that tell a story in a kind of cryptic or obscure way, but give you those little nuggets for you to cling on to and form your own theories for what's going on. Um, If you like games that will not explicitly, like there are some games that inspire you to make theories about what's going on. And at the end of the game, they tell you exactly what happens. That's not Signalis. It's a game that you make your own theory for. And there are many, many different ways that I think people could come out of this game and and feel about the story. So if you like stuff like that, then absolutely play uh, Signalis. I thought this game was great. I loved playing it. You know, playing the the classics I covered Silent Hill 2 on this show a couple years ago. Um, I covered Resident Evil Remake a couple weeks ago. And I think that this game gave me a lot of the same fun um, experiences that those two games gave me. So pretty easy recommendation for me if the stuff we've talked about sounds appealing. And like, this is one of those episodes of Tales from the Backlog because I structure the show the way it is, where we can't talk about the spoilers yet. A lot of the stuff that like I'm just gonna go fucking nuts on and like <laughs> love fest about is mm-hmm. after the spoiler wall. And so we get into talking about the inventory limit and you know, little gameplay nitpicks and stuff like that earlier, uh, where it might sound like, you know, we're a little bit more or me personally, not to put words in your guys' mouth, I'm a little bit more negative on it than I actually am. Mm-hmm. It's because like the you know, the quote, the real shit is coming after the spoiler break. So just from the way this show is structured. So you're just going to have to trust me or go play it. It's good. Um, it's even if it's not on Game Pass anymore, it's not a $60 game. So uh, go check it out. Support your indie devs. Yes, indeed. Support Rose Engine. They, like Chris said, a lot of love and attention went into this uh, game. And I can't wait to see what they do next. So uh, Chris and Shane, like I said at the top of the show, are the hosts of the Retro Hangover podcast covering retro games. And uh, I will turn it over to you guys to talk a little bit about the show, explain what it is, and talk about where people can find you. Oh, Shane, God, I guess that's me. That is. You're the master <laughs> of the spiel. Oh, no. 
Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I just, you know, want to thank Dave for having us on. Um, I, it is my first time. Chris, Chris, he, you know, as we said, he, he gets around, but, uh, I'm a, but slut. This, <laughs> a pod slut, but this is my first time here. So, uh, I really appreciate the, the invite and the chance to, to not only play this game, but to, to talk about it as well. And, uh, if you happen to be interested in classic retro video games and, dudes what talk about them then you are in luck because that is in fact what we are offering to you so uh you can check out the retro hangover podcast by simply going to our link tree uh that's uh just l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash retro hangover uh you can find the link to the show there as well as all of our socials and all that other good stuff so uh if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in then please uh, feel free to to check us out. Absolutely, and it's a it's a show that I really recommend people do check out. Um, I've already mentioned your Silent Hill two episode, which was what I was like. Oh, I'll ask them if they want to play Signalis because their Silent Hill two episode mm-hmm. was really really good. Um, and this game made me you know remember playing Silent Hill two. Uh, is there another episode that you think uh, people should check out if they want to get a taste of Retro Hangover? Oh man, I gotta think of the something in the backlog now. I don't know, Chris, help me out here. What uh, what would what would be a good representation of the show and the two hundred something things we got out there now? I'll recommend uh our our best performing new episode every year and our worst, and they both have the same guest, uh, which is funny. Um, <laughs> so if if you want the more humorous side and our more sophomoric side. Then go check out Dragon Wang because ah, everyone yes. who listens to that really does enjoy that. And if if you want, probably I'll just a really good episode, Silent Hill Two, definitely, definitely. Everyone says that that's one of their favorites, but uh, mm-hmm. one of my personal favorites. Before I let you say yours here, Shane, is our Lunar episode. Mm. So go check out that one as well because I love Lunar and I will always, always pitch Lunar. Yeah. Plus, I think that was. That ended up being a two-parter back when we thought we had to split them into two parts because of the light. That, that state is one. Lunar state is one. It's Did it? I fantastic. thought we split yeah. that one. That's one. Huh, okay. Oh, I'm thinking of Fantasy Star. That's what you I'm are. thinking of, which, by the way, also another good one. So there Very you good. go. Yeah. I mean, nice. my my recommendation would have been Silent Hill 2, actually. I, I nerded out hard on the lore in that episode, so I, <laughs> I very much enjoyed that one. Yep. And it was fantastic. Uh, if people would like to hear me on Retro Hangover, uh, I guested talking about Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic and Metal Gear Solid. So those are two uh, other episodes that people can check out if they want to hear me there. Um, so again, uh, check out Retro Hangover. Great show. There will be a, a link down in the show notes. So when I'm talking about myself for the next minute, you can just tune me out. It's the same thing you heard last week. And uh, go check out Retro Hangover. Subscribe. You'll hear their newest stuff. So for Tales from the Backlog, um, I am going to uh, plug joining the Discord server this week at the top um, because there are several people in the Discord server who want to talk about the story of Signalis. And if you played Signalis and you want to talk about the story, this is the week for that. Um, hop in. There's a link again down in the show notes, an invite link to join. It's open to everybody and we have a great community and we would love to have you there. And it, 
I think the Tales from the Backlog channel will look like a redacted FBI document this week as we talk spoilers <laughs> for the story of Signalis. Um, but it's a great community. We'd love to have you. If you would like to support the show monetarily, patreon.com slash Jackson is the place. Uh, you will get some bonus content. I'm planning a bonus. I'm recording this before the month of October, but I'm planning a bonus uh, game episode for the patrons in October. And uh, there's polls. There is a bonus retro gaming series uh, where I have varying degrees of fun and success playing retro games called Tales from the Way Backlog. Uh, That's all on the Patreon. So, oh, I also do another podcast called A Top Three Podcast. Uh, That show is uh, a comedy show. Chris was a guest on one of our more chaotic episodes that we've ever done where we drafted things that start with the letter T. And if that sounds stupid and ridiculous, it's because it was, and it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So, yeah, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, full spoilers for the story in Signalis. Okay, Chris and Shane and I are back and we are talking spoilers for Signalis. This is one of those spoiler sections that is not a chronological walk through the stuff that you learn. Uh, We're going to spoil one of the late game revolutions right now. So if you uh, haven't played and you don't want to be spoiled again, this is another warning to get out. So. I want to start the spoiler section since this game is told in such an obtuse and nonlinear and uh, confusing way. I want to see if we can agree on some facts before we start diving into theory. Fair. So Elster is a replica. That's something we said in the non-spoiler section. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do learn that replicas are copies of human consciousness. Yes. And, uh, the humans are called gestalts in this game. I think the, mm-hmm. gest- the gestalts are humans. Yes. yes. S- still with me here? Yep. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> also, I was like, well, let- let's just check. Are those real German words? Because this uh, German developers, and it is. Gestalt is German for shape or form, and replica means copy, uh, as as it were. So Elster is a copy of a gestalt named Falky is how I'm pronouncing their name um, because there are some late game things that you read, notes that you read, uh, where it is written, seemingly written from Elster's perspective. Uh, there's a quote, um, a letter that you find called The Red Dream that lists stuff that you've done throughout the game. Um, it, it says a crashed ship, a strange gate, a hole in the ground. Um, an island beyond reach, memories from other lives, dreams of suffering and loneliness, a promise, a search for someone lost. That's what you've been doing in Signalis. This is late game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a quote, I saw her in the red emptiness waiting for me. We had made a promise. As the memories of a stranger rushed into my mind, I felt the borders of myself blur. Now I can no longer tell well where Falky ends and Elster begins. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, and then, of course, Falky is the final boss. She says, let us become whole again. So there we are. Yeah. And I, I assume we're going to touch on uh, where, where, who, who the Gestalts are. Yeah. What do you think? Because that's, it's not quite part of my, I, I think like that answer could be anything in my greater theory for what's going on. So what do you think? Well, in, in terms of if we're talking just about like Elster, right, the the yeah. consciousness that is utilized to make Elster models, essentially, right, was based on a human, a gestalt um, named Lilith. Of course. And, yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably she was chosen because of. Well, honestly, in a way, because of her personality that was shaped by uh, the PTSD that she suffered from being drafted into the war that was going on. And so this like very sort of baseline, like neutral, stoic sort of personality that she formed for herself as sort of a defense mechanism, I think. Um, and when I say they, I mean like the, the, you know, the, the powers that be who are kind of running this program, um, felt that that was an ideal, uh, personality slash consciousness to use as a gestalt for these Elster models Mm -hmm. because they were meant to be sort of like, you know, these, these subservient, uh, androids, if you will. Um, now, and, and stop me if I'm like, going too far off the rails or anything but um not in this game <laughs> yeah no yeah no. not yet but the interesting thing about that uh one of the many interesting things about it and it's part of what makes this narrative multi-layered and also potentially incredibly confusing if it if you aren't able to like parse out what is happening and when is happening um is that Part of the issue, and you see this from like several different notes and and log entries and things like that that you come across throughout the game, is that each different model replica is based on a person's consciousness. And there are very specific triggers that people are told to avoid uh, exposing the replicas to uh, for fear of the the original gestalt's personality being basically reawakened because of these things and like one of one of the many things that they list for elster is like don't expose elster models to like the idea of war or watching like war movies or befriending them or like any of that stuff like don't do that really fucked up too they give the list is uh do not give photographs do not show movies or listen to music and already i'm like that sounds pretty shitty and then it's like straight up at the end don't befriend them and i'm like (laughs) oh (laughs) that's pretty fucked up the fact that these are copies of a consciousness but it's not a copy of like the surface level consciousness like the the desired traits mm-hmm. all of the stuff that's in there that's buried is also copied over and it's it's a little bit on uh i think what this game is trying to say about the nature of consciousness and you know if you were able to copy it all of it comes over not just the stuff that's on the surface and visible and 
uh, desired. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, that kind of complicates things a little bit, too, because then you also have a mix of gestalts and replicas um, sort of throughout the game, mostly by and large, mostly replicas. But that that is kind of thrown into the mix a little bit there to kind of confuse things, I think, a little bit more. I, I also have a lot of theories on that, but that's going to be until much later. And it's based off an analysis video I watched. So I want Dave to go through it because he has not watched an analysis video. Not saying the analysis video is correct, but um, because Dave hasn't watched anything, but all this together, I do want to go get into that before I, I do get into that as well. But I, for some more facts, I do think we should bring up. Yeah. Um, I Was it Falk? Who's uh, she was the girl that you read a bunch of notes the entire time that you're going throughout the the various settings that Elster is going through. And you're reading the notes uh, specifically in the spaceship that she was sent off into space by the nation. And the reason she did was because she volunteered because she couldn't stand being in the nation because she was raised to do things that were forbidden by the nation. Um, she wanted to dance. She wanted to sing. She wanted to play music, all that stuff like that. So these are probably triggering things for her replica. Um, so she's sent off into space to find a new planet to live on. And while she's out there, she becomes lonely. So she starts friending her replica and becoming romantically involved with her replica. And, um, eventually it says, Hey, look, you're, you're going to die from radiation, uh, destroy your replica on top of it. And that, that's something that happens near the very end, uh, that is revealed to you. Well, that's, it's, it's kind of, it's the other way around, actually, that the, it's not that they are supposed to destroy the replica. It's that they, they eventually get that message where it's like, Hey, it's been 3000 cycles or whatever. And also surprise, you were basically sent on a suicide mission because we never expected yeah. you to come back. And so rather than suffering, like kill your human because the human's going to suffer a lot. So right. it was the replica that was supposed yes. to kill her. Yeah, mm. but I think it was addressed to her to have a replica kill her or something like that. Mm. It was because all the messages were towards Falk. She because they were they were all directed towards her instead of the replica, if I recall correctly. Well, also let's. I feel like we need to be careful about who, what name we're using because Falk was like the <laughs> commander of the Serpinski station, right? Okay, and right. So she eventually gets sort of taken over by. Elster slash Lilith, um, but there's okay. So there's Lilith potentially a reason for that, that, but yeah. So it's it's um it's the it's Elster and um is it Arian or is it Alina? Which one is the one that's actually on the ship? I think it's Arian, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay, so Arian. Yeah. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Arian. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 but yes, yes. um, because this because this game deals in such a a dreamy way of telling its story and narrative. It makes things possible in my mind that like we see a scene where Elster and Ariane are on the ship. They're dancing. They're watching a war movie. They're doing everything that that guide for Elster units says not to do, basically. Yep. yep. But I don't think that that's Elster on the ship. I think that that's Falky on the ship. I think that Elster is like... Because what, what I think is happening is that there are consciousnesses merging 
and that's causing all these compatibility issues. And before we get deep into like, why is the planet made of flesh and all of that shit? I think like the big thing that I think is happening in the story is that because people didn't follow protocols and because this like consciousness transferring system is imperfect that they say in the game, I think that they're merging. Elster is reawakening for lack of a better word, uh, as old consciousness and memories starts to flood in. And so you can't trust the memories from Elster herself because they're not hers, I think. Well, so, okay, let me see. There's, there's so many, <laughs> and, and this that is, is a lot. Yeah. It, it is a lot. We've already gone off of the, let's just talk about the facts thing. We're, we're already straight right. into yeah, theory we're, crafting, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. um, okay. So the way that I saw this or the way that I sort of interpreted it, right. Is that Fal- Falk or Falky, however we want to pronounce it, um, was like the, the, like I said, the commander in charge of like the Serpinski mining station and Adler was the sort of like her her right hand dude, right? Um, and they're both replicants, correct? As far as I'm aware, yes. Okay. I, I know. So ignore everything I said earlier. When I said Falk, I meant Ariane. Yeah, Ariane. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see. I thought that they were both Gestalt, um, Falky and Adler, but I'm, you know, not. Uh, not confident in that. That's just what I thought. Okay. Um, well, I would say in, yeah, I don't know. I, I would say in either case, I, I think there's a case to be made that at the very least, I feel like Falk is definitely a replica because of what ends up happening to her yeah. with, with Elster's personality. But at any rate, they are at the Serpensky station. Those two, the the ones that are on the ship that's that is um Lilith slash the I'm I'm going to refer to it as the original Elster right because mm-hmm. Ariane was sent with an Elster model yeah in in the ship and uh, what what was the ship called again it started with an S I did not write it down let's see I can't I can't recall now but essentially they were um they were one of many people that were sent on like i said essentially these suicide missions out into the deep reaches of space in arguably like not the greatest uh constructed ships purely just in the hopes that they would send some sort of useful information back but there was never any intention of them actually coming back alive and so in those years that they were in space is before they were aware that they were on a doomed mission from the get Ariane basically completely threw out all of those protocols, like you said, mm-hmm. and befriended and eventually became romantically involved with the original Elster replica that was with her. Um, and then when we get to about the, 3000 cycle mark is when they get that letter that you find um, that printout. They get this message that tells them that they're like, Hey, it's been this long. This is what's happening. Like you're kind of screwed. Like maybe you should kill your human basically and keep them from suffering. Um, And it's like from that point where some of a lot of like the subjective things start to kind of come into play. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a, the sort of a turning point 
in the story. Now, of course, I, I have my theories about kind of what's going on, but I'm going to stop my diatribe here for a second and give somebody else a chance to jump in. So since since we're kind of in the theory crafting and now everything's kind of rushing back to me and who all these characters are. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Ariana, Ariani, or however you want to say her name, I'm just going to say Ariane. Uh, she was sent into space. She's the girl that was, you know, raised uh, a separate person. She has friends that she's with. One of her, uh, the friends are referred to as the sisters. One of those sisters you're you're chasing through the entire time, uh, meeting up with her and Adler's trying to to catch her. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's going on there. Now, if you read the notes, and this is something from the analysis uh, video that I watched that I happen to agree with, the notes infer that certain people are bioresonant, much like the Empress, mm-hmm. and certain people have the ability to create alternate realities with their bioresonance. Yep. So when you get to the end, when they're getting to the end of this cycle, and now remembering the note that you're talking about, whether or not, you know, she's going to die, what it says is you're getting to the end. Eventually, you're going to be flooded with radiation. Um, you have two options. You can either try to stay alive and, and die, or you can have your you can have your replica kill you. Now, she's romantically involved with the replica. She does not want to die. She wants to preserve their time together as much as possible. So one of the one of the theories that I happen to agree with is while she is dying from essentially radiation cancer, and that's why she's in this this pod and this Mm -hmm. pod is meant to keep her alive. And that's what these notes say as well, that you can put yourself in like the stasis pod. You can stay in there is meant to keep you alive. However, it's like a false existence while she's in there. She creates a reality where. They get to the promise, and the promise that they make is that the replica will kill her, but the replica will not kill her because the replica is friends with her. So the replica cannot keep the promise. Mm-hmm. So, and that's one of the endings, which I'll let you get into, Dave. Uh, the the repl- and there's d- different endings that you can get. I think the ways that you get them is bullshit. But essentially, <laughs> what's happening is that the entire world that you're in does not exist. It is completely generated by Ariane, everything about it. And it's all crafted from the ideas that she has about these various locations at Serpinski, about the, the different planets, because you don't just jump from one location to another. You jump between planets mm-hmm. uh, within the solar system. So how are you as Elster jumping between these? It, it's all within this imaginary world space that's created by bioresonance by Ariane. So everyone in there. They are manifestations of Arian's, you know, imagination. And this is why when you get to a point relatively early in the game, you see all these Elsters in this elevator pit all dead. Mm-hmm. And you ha- keep on saying, you know, Adler saying, hey, uh, you're doing this again, or hey, this is your last chance, implied that every single time Elster goes in there and she fails, there's a restart. And this is heavily implied by the game's first ending, where Elster essentially dies, and then you come back, and it's not a full cycle, but you do start at the beginning of the game again, even though it's slightly altered. So there's this feeling of, and that like the ship is crashed, but everything is just metaphorical. Nothing is real. You're you're in a world that has been created by her. She's trying to find land, so she creates land through her bioresonance in her mind to be there. And the person exploring it is the replica that's on your ship that she's created this world for in the hopes that eventually she will find her within this world that she created and kill her. 
See, I I would ascribe to some of that. Also, I I totally got strong Silent Hill vibes off of this because as soon as I kind of was Definitely. piecing this together, I was just like, "Oh, it's Alyssa. It this is a this is Alyssa, basically." <laughs> um, yes, but. Uh, so, so my take on this is, is a little bit different. And that's kind of the beauty of this is that nobody's really right. There's no real mm-hmm. correct answer here. And that was very intentional, I think, on the developer's behalf. Mm-hmm. But they, they weave enough things into it that a lot of different theories are very plausible, which I think is great. Um, my personal kind of take on it is, is somewhat similar, though. My thought on it is that. The, the ship actually did crash and it was near this Serpensky mining facility. And because we know that there are individuals that can possess this, this bio resonance and we know that Ariane is one and arguably a very strong one. Um, one of the things that I was trying to pick apart in my brain is like, how, if, if this is a completely fabricated reality, like, how would she know a lot of these like intricate details of a mining facility that she's like never really been to? Um, and one of the things, and I can, I cannot take credit for this at all, but one of the things that I came across that is a plausible explanation for this is that she is one of the things that they make a note of in the game is that those who have bioresonance are kind of tapping into what they refer to as like the song of the cosmos that there's this thing that most people can't hear but for those that are attuned to it it's it's ever present and it's sort of like it connects everybody right um and these bioresonant individuals can hear this and part of that ability is that they can sort of interconnect with one another and sort of feed off of each other. And I think that that may be what's happening where it's not necessarily that it's a purely fabricated reality. It's that it is an extremely distorted reality, but one that's kind of caught in a, like in a purposeful time loop, like that she is, able to control basically like the, the flow of time within this sphere of influence and any individuals who are at the mining facility that also possessed any manner of bioresonance. I think she was kind of using to amplify this. And that's where mm. some of these details come in is because those people would know intimate details of these spaces. And so it's not that it's all fabricated in in my mind. It's that mm-hmm. she's got this sphere of influence that she's basically created almost a time bubble around that she then essentially has trapped people like Adler in because he does make mm. those those notes of just like, I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm living the same day over and over again. And he does say that to the the version of elster that we're playing of like on a number of occasions early on yeah when he like kicks her down the elevator shaft he's just like yeah you're doing this again and then at the end of the game when he's basically a a husk of a of a corpse almost he's just like you can't keep doing this um mm-hmm. and it's not that it's the same elster every time i think that what's happening is Ariane is basically calling out to 
other Elster models, basically, yep. and bringing them to this sort of reality bubble that she's created and running them through this sort of gauntlet to get them to remember air quotes Lilith and remember all of these memories and remember the original Elster and the experiences there who then at that point, then they're, they're basically functionally the same as the original Elster and they go on this mission again to try to get to her and, in the hopes that one of them is going to fulfill this promise. And that's where you get all of these like replica corpses is because every one of them has basically failed up until this point. And it's for whatever the equivalent of cycles are in this game, because like you see another note later that says that it's been 5,000 cycles and like Ariane is basically just suffering and she's alone. And so I think that's, part of what's feeding this this thing very much like Alyssa in silent hill like her pain from this like slow radiation death that she's trying to prolong in this pod um or or even you might even make the argument that she's not in the pod by her own choice that the original elster put her there as a mercy because she didn't want to kill her um but ultimately that's kind of like a worse fate because she's just trying to get one of them to kill her because she doesn't want to continue existing in this way um so yeah that's a lot i don't know that was a brain dump but (laughs) (laughs) keep in mind one of the endings uh elster does kill arianne yes yeah yeah Yeah. and fulfills the promise and i want to i want to talk about the eldritch thing too but i'm gonna i'm gonna save that for a minute because i i have some thoughts on that also yeah so i didn't remember reading the note about the the promise actually being to kill Ariane. So I either didn't read that or I read it and forgot. I didn't uh, read so, it either, but it is implied. Yeah, I, I don't think it was explicitly said. I think I just, okay. it was the, impl- the implication. <laughs> because of the implication. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so my theories on what's going on here are not based around fulfilling the promise to kill Ariane uh, at all. Basically, um, I, I came up with a very, I mean, not that the the creation of a time bubble uh, that replays this loop until there's an Elster that's able to finally get there and finish the job. Not that that's not off the wall also, because uh, <laughs> this, this game inspires that kind of thing. And that's why I was excited to talk about it here. I guess we can talk about the Eldritch stuff uh, before I go into like my theory that I came up with with what's going on. So I have two thoughts about this. Either, well, three thoughts. One of them is kind of a joke because you read The King in Yellow really early in the game uh, and The King in Yellow in uh, the fiction, in the book, The King in Yellow is a play that makes people go crazy when they read it. So that's Mm -hmm. theory number one is they read the play and they, you just kind of went crazy and everything you see is the ramblings of a crazy person, but that's no fun. Um, (laughs) Two thoughts here. Number one, that the planet that they crash land on, because I'm of the opinion that the planet is real in a sense. So either it is a real planet made of flesh because this is a sci-fi horror story and I'm willing to suspend disbelief uh, and that there is some kind of entity down deep in the planet that's calling out to the replicas on board or on the uh, in the station. Uh, as people go deep, deeper and deeper into the mines, 
um, there are notes that you find about uh, something calling out and uh, calling them to join them. Uh, those scenes when you're on the beach and reading those notes as you're walking along. Mm-hmm. So there's that thought that there is an eldritch entity that was discovered and woken up. And it's a very HP Lovecraft idea that once they found it, it can never be sealed away again. And everybody succumbs to the call. In this case, I really latched on to the becoming whole part of this where the the replicants and the gestalts, the memories of the gestalts uh, have to become whole, whether it's because of this entity that they find that's that's causing this. And uh, anyone who is not able to go through this process for whatever reason, uh, maybe they didn't break those barriers down like Elster did. Those are the ones that are going crazy and trying to kill you in the planet. This is assuming the ones, assuming that this planet is a planet that you are, it's physically there. It's real. It just happens to be made of flesh and has an Eldritch monster inside. The other thought, I guess we'll, we'll stick with this. Stick with this. I'll get to my other theory after that. This was my idea of a possible Eldritch horror explanation for what's happening. Elster's going through this merging of consciousness with the resurfacing of the human memories. And, you know, if Elster and Falky are both replicants, then there's some crossover between them because Elster has memories from Falky and Falky has memories from the human, right? Because mm-hmm. you do read a thing that's it's titled Falky's Memory, um, and it's basically the scene you see with Elster on the ship. So I'm not sure how to square that. I don't know. Uh, but I do think that there is memories resurfacing and it's a very messy process, and that's what's causing these random pop-ins of memories. There's a memory sitting on a train uh, that you. This is what's explaining when you snap from place to place. It's memories surfacing and just dominating the consciousness for some time. Yeah, I'll put a pin in that because it, it goes deeper with my other theory for what the planet is. But for now, Eldritch okay. ideas. <laughs> so there's there's a couple things. This, this, to address your theory first, there's a couple things why I disagree with Shane's theory and to an extent Dave's theory here. Uh, because Rotfront is the last area you go to. And Rotfront mm-hmm. is very much his own planet that is separate from the initial stages that you are on. Also, the Penrose, the, the, the uh, ship you are on, is both shown in space and crashed. And yeah. this is all part of the cycle. So if it's actually on a planet, the fact that you're shifting planets and locations doesn't necessarily, in my opinion lend credence to uh, them summoning multiple Elsters back uh, to one primary locations, specifically because the transition to another planet is through some weird uh, flesh hole. So unless there's that's the way you travel, which is completely possible because this is sci-fi and anything's possible in sci-fi. Um, that's, that's where my doubts would be. Mm-hmm. Now, my theory is going to go incredibly dark and I'm going to try to be very careful because it does touch on some sensitive subject matters. When Dave mentioned he was theory crafting, I said, I've seen the analysis video. I think I have it figured out. But something something stuck with me that, that really bothered me that I started thinking about that I was playing through the game and it kind of was interesting. But then I started putting it together and this is my theory. I just want to ha- uh, hear what you guys think of it. One of the things that stuck out um, that was atypical was that 
every single one of the replicants and gestalts were were female. They were they were women, mm-hmm. mm. except for Adler, yeah. and he is a he is a replicant. You don't know who Gestalt is. You don't see any. You don't see any male. Uh, you don't see any male or men. Um, Gestalts throughout the entire game. The other thing that sticks out is the only time that you see a picture where they're not beaten up or bruised or bloody or in a bad condition is before they go to war. It's mm. while they're in the academy. So this is for me where it gets a little dark. Because there's a lot of references to becoming whole. There's a lot of references to something happening to them, and then they cannot get over it. And so when I'm looking into this, where you have a, a, a male figure in Adler is the bad guy, and you have a bunch of women who look like they have been abused, who talk about not being whole, who get into a lot of flesh situations, I start to wonder if the guess what is being Represented through the bioresonance of Ariane, and perhaps this happened to Ariane as well, which why she left the nation and flew into space is because these are survivors of sexual assault, which why would explain they are all women. Why, why are there no men at the Serpinski station? Why are they all female soldiers? Why are all their pictures all bruised up and bloody? They have a medical bay. And mm-hmm. whenever you're going to make an idea of someone, you're not going to make it where they're all bandaged up. That doesn't connect unless Mm. this is a reflection of Ariane just in her own mental state about what someone would look like recovering from cancer. But that doesn't make sense because these are obvious signs of trauma other than cancer. Now, you can make that relation to when you get to to nowhere and that could be the, the manifestation of the cancer taking over Ariane, which is not mine. That was in the analysis video. That's not my idea. But. The fact that you only have one figure, and that's the bad guy who's chasing Issa throughout the, you know, throughout your excavation space in the hospital and everything like that, that's chasing her, harassing her, and trying to pin her into a corner, and that's the singular male character you see. And then everything else, like all the humans die immediately after this thing happens to them, and then their replicants carry on, which is just a shadow of what they were, but eventually be- they become angry they attack you they they become just hollow shells of their former selves and the entire focus is how to become whole that's that's where i'm starting to think that that's why there's this manifestation is she's coming to the end of her life and there's still this anger of something really bad happened to her and all these things that she knows that happened to everybody else and that's manifesting in this reality that she created. And this is how she's trying to cope with it. It's a very Hmm. silent Hill theory. Again, I mean, it reminds me of some of the characters in silent Hill too. That's what silent Hill is Mm -hmm. basically. So yeah, it it makes sense. You, that's a, a convincing case. I, you know, I didn't really think twice about why they're all women. Um, I just, not to say that I didn't ever notice it, but I didn't, yeah, definitely didn't incorporate it into any uh, story reason. So that makes sense. Um, Adler is, you know, until the end when he's got a knife sticking out of his face and he's just kind of like, please don't go in there again. He's a real, he's a real pain in the ass for everybody involved in the story. So with that explanation, it would make sense that that's the role that Adler plays in the story. 
and one more thing as well is remember these triggers you were talking about and it, it reminded me when I was reading your notes mm. is they're not called triggers. They're called fetishes. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is another thing that is a direct link towards more sexual activity. Mm-hmm. So like to me that that seems to add up or it just adds more questions as to why these characters are presented the way they are in their medical files or their IDs or everything like that. That is, that is a really interesting take. I, I hadn't thought of that angle at all, but you do make a pretty convincing argument for it. And, and like Dave, I never really, I kind of took the all female thing just sort of at like face value, I guess. I I didn't really even Mm -hmm. think about whether or not there would be a, a deeper implication to that, but that, that is a very interesting take on it though. Yeah. Agreed. Um, yeah, completely out of uh, my train of thought uh, when thinking about the story. So that's awesome. I like the um, I like that theory, and I like the the theories about the bioresonance and the time time bubble and all of that stuff too. I mean, it's I I haven't even gotten to what I consider to be like the coolest of my ideas about the story, but we're already at, what is this theory number five now for what's going on in the story? This is your number five. Yeah. (laughs) So I I gave my idea for what if the planet is real? What if it's a real planet made of flesh and it has an Eldritch monster? We actually didn't get, Shane, you wanted to talk about Eldritch stuff. So let's do that first. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Now I feel like I'm completely like sidelined by... (laughs) by chris's take on this but um but but going back to the mostly just sort of face value sci-fi horror um yeah uh so my take on it i mean to me there's kind of like two not like that this is a definitive list but in my mind there's kind of two ways i could i feel like i could go with it one is that kind of like what you were saying they did in fact uncover an actual like you know cosmic horror eldritch entity beneath the mines and that is part of what's influencing everything that's that's happening the other take on it and this is the one that i personally tend to ascribe to more um if for nothing else that i I actually just think it's more interesting is that it's a fabrication as part of Ariane's sort of bioresonance projection through through the Serpensky station. Um, and that's sort of facilitated by the uh the the non-authorized books that the the that her friends, her high school friends, who I believe were twins, the two the two sisters, mm-hmm. um gave to her or let her borrow. Um and they were books about cosmic horror and things like that and so i feel like if we're saying that her sort of like subconscious and things like that could influence what's happening within this like sphere of influence that she has um i don't think that there actually is a real eldritch horror entity on that planet but Mm -hmm. i think she manifested one and fair, fair, it was yeah. what's that i said no that's that's a great take yeah I, I so i i think that she manifested it and so for the people and if we're sticking with my theory about the serpinski mining station and all that stuff actually being there and she's like influencing it and affecting those who were already there 
then to them it's real, right? And mm-hmm. so to them, there is some heinous shit going on at the bottom of this mine and it's affecting people. Um, but it's ultimately being created and manifested from Ariane's bioresonant abilities. Um, so that's, that's kind of my take on it. And also the other thing, um, that kind of ties into this as well is there's this whole concept of like the, the red eye, right? Mm-hmm. And, I believe, and I obviously didn't see all of the endings, but I know there's one called the artifact ending where there's like, I think all of the different, there's different copies of, uh, the Elster replica. And then when the one with the like white body chassis, like basically dies, then you get this weird metallic object and there's this big red eye. And then you see her and area and like dancing in a decrepit ship or whatever. And so I don't, my there's an interesting take on this one that i i feel like i'm gonna stick with because i i just like it and that is that this red eye thing that they talk about um again i think that that was something that was sort of part of arianne's subconscious because they talk about the coins there's a there's a section where they talk about these coins that people get paid with where there was during this like festival that they do there was a uh a tradition where they would like dip the coins in red paint or whatever before they gave them to people because it was part of this, like the early settlers of the planet or whatever believed that Mm -hmm. this red eye, which ultimately is just like a solar storm or whatever, but they ascribed, you know, these otherworldly characteristics to it, you know, very like uh, superstitious type stuff. And so I think that that had an influence on, on Ariane, and so that's kind of how this like red eye thing ends up manifesting as part of this, you know, eldritch entity slash influence that you see like as you're playing through. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Interesting. So what I actually think is happening is along the lines of that theory and then the theory of the const- the constructed world uh, mm-hmm. theory, basically. But I did not place as much importance on bioresonance uh, as far as like the abilities of, of one person, basically. Uh, the bioresonance thing that I was um, like taking into account is how they are looking for a way to make perfect copies, but they're not able to yet because they just don't have the technology to, uh, to do that mm-hmm. yet. And I, I think that bioresonance plays into that process. So by making those perfect copies, I think that what they mean is making replicas that don't have these repressed memories from when they were human right? Uh, or, if there are multiple stops along the way, like if Elster is a copy of Falky, who was a copy of Lilith, 
then we have two sets of memories flooding into a third person, basically, which is what I think is happening here. And I think that the planet that they're on is a metaphor as you go deeper, a metaphor from higher levels of consciousness to much more primal ideas of life, basically. Uh, When we're talking about robots, androids versus humans, the organic nature of the human is something that can't be replicated. That's the most basic thing about humans and animals versus a an android copy is that we are made of flesh basically so this planet used to in this i meant to say it earlier many times and i kept forgetting in this this is one of those games like silent hill 2 where you are always going down every time you progress through the game it's because you're going down mm-hmm. you're going down through the station you're going down through the mines you're constantly jumping into pits uh like a uh, good old james from silent hill 2 So that makes me think that we are moving deeper and deeper into, like I said, a metaphor for we start out at consciousness and then we get down into like real human or even more base than human organic living stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. That's why when you go down into the mines, everything's made of flesh because you're at that level now. You've moved past higher levels of thinking and it's a much more, you're at the much more primal level level Hmm. um why elster is moving down is because again i think that because those protocols were broken um these memories from past lives are resurfacing which is why you get that scene on the train or that scene in the school which is clearly not elster it's a past life basically um so yeah um lilith is a gestalt lilith Lilith is a gestalt Lilith yeah. is Issa's sister. They're the twins, Lilith yeah. and Erica. Um, and Elster, yes, Elster is, from my understanding, Lilith's replica. Yes. Right. Yes. I, I don't know where Falk sets in, but I think Falky is, is separate from the two characters. Yeah, I got kind of hung up on how Falky wants to become whole with Elster, and that's that's what they say you do when you beat her as the final boss, at least my interpretation of it was. So there is a connection there. I'm just not exactly sure what it is. So again, I think that we have a merging of consciousness and memories and things um, where memories from one person start flooding into another and they're incompatible, basically. And that's where you get all the glitching. That's where you get all of the random pop in. That's where you get uh, seemingly snapping from location to location, it's because it's a memory. It's not us moving from location to location physically. There are other people who I think talk about going through this process, including Adler. Uh, Adler says he had a dream of his gestalt life uh, in one of his diaries. So that's what makes me think there are others going through this, and the ones who can't are put in this eternal cycle of torment basically and that's why they turn into monsters i i think uh there's something there that's blocking them i'm not sure what it is but you know something and then once you get down to that red area at the bottom of the mines uh, we've talked about the cycle i agree there's a cycle um many elsters have tried this before 
Um, and this is an eternal attempt, uh, a, an eternal attempt to become whole, I, I think. So we do see the dead Elster bodies down there, the ones that have tried. And Adler's down there saying, like, you've been here before. You've tried this. You've failed. Um, but you're back again. Adler says that Falky saw something out there beyond the threshold. This is in that red area at the bottom of the mine. That could be the thing, the eldritch thing that is causing this. It's a classic Lovecraft thing. Someone went past a threshold and saw something they shouldn't have seen. Mm -hmm. And now they're fucked up forever, basically. Um, And it broke something in them. Or if you want to go in the more metaphorical way, uh, Elster is just repeatedly trying to make this process, this transition process whole or complete. Um, And every time she gets down to this base red level at the bottom, uh, including the time you see in the game when you try to rip open the ship doors and she apparently dies, wakes up again in the ship uh, with that that fake out ending. Um, That is, you know, another attempt. But since this is metaphorical, we don't have to retrace our steps. Uh, We can kind of I actually think, correct me if I'm wrong, after that fake-out ending, you go back into the station, but everything is covered in flesh, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. I think that's what happens. So, like, she failed, but she's further along in the process, basically. One of the cool things about that, too, is that when you restart and you go up and there's that pod, now you don't know Mm -hmm. what's in the pod, you just know there's a pod, you take your new arm from an Elster unit that's next to that pod. Right. Which infers that, yes, that's part of the cycle. So if you get that ending. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we generally agree that like at least several of our many theories agree that there is some kind of cycle going on. I think the difference between our theories is whose cycle it is, who constructed this. Um, Because I, I personally, if I'm look, actually I don't, think one is cooler than the other. But if I'm guessing, like if the developers looked at my two theories, aside from being, they're saying you're, they're both wrong, you idiot. What are you talking about? (laughs) They would, I think that they would go for the more metaphorical read of the story than the Eldritch horror read of it. Mm -hmm. And you can have Eldritch horror inside of the metaphorical one to a degree too, uh, of course. But What I think is happening, Adler down at the bottom, he keeps warning you about this cycle um, because I think that Elster's mind is reaching a breaking point like the others that have gone crazy. Uh, He says, you know, are you willing to go through this again? This world can't take much more. Uh, He actually says you'll destroy everything. It's a note you pick up. It says you've tried so many times and you failed every time. Don't you see that you're ruining everything? This is your final warning. It's a note written by Adler to Elster, um, I believe, because if this is a metaphorical world, it will all come crashing down once she goes feral, like all the others, basically. And then she does finally succeed uh, at the end. Now, I again, I missed the note and I didn't read anything, watch anything. So the promise being to kill Ariane could be it could fit into this if this is all mental struggle that she's going through along the way to try to reach Ariane to carry out the promise. I don't think that that excludes anything that I've said. It's just the difference of what happens when she gets there. Does she remember the promise? 
has she lost too much of her directive along the way? Or, you know, in the quote, better ending, you do get up there and she remembers, Ariane remembers her. And then you end up, um, Elster ends up killing her. In my ending, I got the memory ending where um, Elster goes into the ship. Uh, Ariane does not remember Elster and Elster just lays down and dies next to her, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not fulfilling the promise. So it's like, not that there's a good ending to this game because someone dies in all the endings. It all sucks. Yeah. That is my spiel about what I think is going on. I skipped over some of my notes, but I got my point across. And knowing that that is what the promise is, I think fits in because I think that what's happening in the story is, is on the side of the quest to fulfill the promise. It's a lot of what's going on with merging consciousness. That's what I thought. Yeah. So I've been, while, while we've been talking about this, I've been thinking through a couple other things and also kind of doing a little bit more rabbit hole digging. And I feel like, because obviously I didn't experience like the artifact ending. Cause that one is one that apparently you only get if you've somehow, if you've played through the game, like multiple times and know yeah. exactly what you need to do and whatever, um, so I didn't get that, but having understood now what that ending entails, where I, I was kind of alluding to that earlier with the multiple copies of Elster replica and the, the sort of weird, like, uh, object and the eye and then the whole dancing thing, but it also involves these lilies, right? So part of the key for that is getting this vase of lilies, and you end up sort of like bringing them to this monolith. And that's part of that ending. And a thing that I didn't even really realize, because again, I didn't see this ending for myself, but is that this also mirrors um, what happened with Lilith and Alina. So that's something that we didn't necessarily talk a whole lot about because those mm-hmm. were two gestalts, right? And this was before the events of this game. Right. So like Lilith and Alina were both like soldiers. Um, I think they were in the, what's that plant? Venita or Venita or however you pronounce that. Mm-hmm. And they were like infantry. And the sort of like implication there is that they were romantically involved and they both, you know, unsurprisingly perhaps, uh, visually look very, very much like, um, Elster and Ariane. Ariane. Yeah. Right. And so that ending with the artifact ending, the lilies and bringing it to this monolith and all that stuff, and even the configuration of how like the replica bodies are positioned around this thing seem to mirror the uh, Lilith like mourning Alina's death, like at, at the gravesite that you see like a flash of in one of like the memory flashbacks. And so I'm, I'm saying all of this because with that knowledge, I, I actually kind of want to retract a little bit of what I said about what I think that promise actually is not, not anything Hmm. about like my theory on the, you know, uh, the bioresonance and all that stuff, but I think the loops, this, this cycle that they're caught in, I don't, I actually don't think that the intention is to successfully kill Ariane. I think 
part of this was fueled by Arianne's grief of losing Elster and also her like her her pain and suffering from this radiation cancer and the loop is actually it's being created by Arianne but it's for Elster's benefit and by that I mean what she's trying to get her to do and perhaps what this promise is is to just finally come to terms with the fact that this is what's happening that that Arianne is dying there's nothing that you can really do about it and to break to ultimately break out of this this cycle um and you could refer to it as like a cycle of grief if you really want to but um because that could be interpreted as what the implication of like that scene at the end of that ending where they're sort of like dancing together and stuff is like there's this perhaps implication that they have successfully finally broken out of this loop and though it's not arguably a good ending um at the very least you've finally gotten to this point of acceptance rather than trying to like vehemently fight against what is really just inevitable i think yeah that's a really good take that's a really good take yeah and i i think that there's probably significance that lilies are the flower that's used um you know lilies you know white flowers would symbolize like innocence or some or uh, rebirth or purity or something like that mm-hmm. um it could also just be that her, her name's lilith and lilies are sounds a lot like it but i you know you choose to choose the symbolic um meaning that everything there is placed for a reason and that they didn't choose daisies or something like that because lilies fit uh better i didn't watch that ending i probably should have but i didn't so if there is like a a meaning of rebirth or something like that then that maybe that's that scene of them dancing at the end um in the ship something has restarted uh basically and i think that's like I think that ending involves Elster dying um, from a quick check, but that is about as close to a happy ending as you'll get Mm -hmm. um, dying and being reborn in that way. Well, because I think the other take or the other part of this take that is definitely not mine. I just want to be clear about that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I, uh, I tend to kind of like it now that I've sort of understood some of this more as we've been talking through it. But if, Ariane is at the point where we can assume that like she is able to bend reality right with this ability that she has uh, this bio resonance and all that stuff like she's at at a point where there's really no purpose for her to still like exist in in this like in this realm right so it's like she's almost like making a choice kind of to continue to exist in this suffering because she cares so much for her elster that like she wants to make sure because the Elster, yeah, it, it, she does die, but the, the, like the imagery there of the, the lilies and this monolith. And also I just put the pieces together too, because part of the flashback, um, toward the beginning there of the two gestalts of Lilith and Alina, Lilith is at a, a hexagonal sort of configuration of graves and she places the lily at one of them and the sort of metallic object that shows up at during that artifact ending is a hexagon 
And so like, I think Ariane was doing this whole thing and creating all of this for the sole purpose of getting Anne Elster, like, because functionally they end up sort of becoming the same person once they, you know, uncover all of that consciousness Mm -hmm. to finally just accept this inevitability and then die knowing that, you know, being able to accept that and then dying sort of at peace. And then Ariane is also sort of released from having to continue to do this because she's now sort of comforted by no in, in knowing that Elster has finally stopped trying to fight this and can kind of go in peace, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things about the red eye as well is that Ariane has red eyes. Mm. Mm. That's true. So, yeah. So, so like, there might not be much more to the Red Eye other than that the world that Elster is in, the world that's being created by Ariane, is being watched over by Ariane. That's why the Red Eye is there. And so, that's mm. I think that's why, like, your your take so much is the, the promise might be to come to the acceptance that she is dying and there's nothing that she can do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, like, like, make your own path, so to speak. Because... One of the, re- the one of the ways you get the ending where she does end up killing Ariane is you have to do essentially what you do to get the bad ending in Silent Hill 2, which <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm spoiling Silent Hill 2 here, but um, you have to run around on low health. You have to constantly put yourself in danger, not save often, not heal yourself often. Um, kill. I think you have to kill a ton of enemies. At the same time, like kill everything. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get the one where you end up killing Ariane. The, the, the memory ending, the one that, um, myself and, and Dave got and is the one where <laughs> we all got and it. you. Yeah. We all got the memory ending was the one where like you're not super cautious. Cause that's the third ending is where you're like super cautious and you're not fighting anything at all. And you're always at full health. Uh, but the, the, we got the middle one where sometimes you get hurt and you kill a few things. And that's the one where you end up dying next to Ariane. Mm-hmm. And then the one where she just walks off and does nothing is where you're very, very prudent. Like all you're doing is thinking about yourself. So in, in this artifact ending, the secret ending that you get on the replay, I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head, Shane. I, I think I fully agree with you in that aspect that the promise that she actually wants her to keep is, a find your own path, find your own way of healing, come to terms with the fact that I am dead and, and I will die. Um, but like you, you can make your own choice. Like you are free of, of the, the contraptions that, that underpin you, mm-hmm. so to speak. With so much in the game, that's not, you know, taken at face value or, you know, you you're encouraged to dig or to think um, on a deeper level about what you see and not to just, you know, like I said, not take everything you see at face value and move on. Um, Maybe, I mean, maybe even if they do explicitly state or or hint at very strongly that the promise is to mercy kill her. um, I think that just because that that's said doesn't mean that that's not also open to interpretation because mm. everything else in the game is open to interpretation. Absolutely. Um, th- there's very few facts. And the f- I mean, the real facts, the things the game is like, this is how it is, 
that's the stuff we talked about in the non-spoiler part about, you know, the the nation and the empire, the stuff we haven't talked about for the last two hours, basically. <laughs> so everything else is open to interpretation. Um, and just because someone says something doesn't mean that that's exactly what they mean. And just because someone hears something doesn't mean that's exactly what they're going to do. And I think that um, these different endings kind of show you that. I would be curious if you ask the developers if there's a canon ending to this. Uh, which one do they consider to be uh, the real one? Um, do they think that uh, it does end in Elster killing Ariane or not killing her for whatever reason? In the ending that we got, Ariane doesn't recognize Elster. And why would it be that she doesn't recognize uh, Elster? Is it because, you know, in my thought, the reason she doesn't recognize Elster is because in Elster's memories, it's not Elster there, it's someone else. So when she gets there with the memories from somebody else, Ariane is like, sorry, I don't know who you are. What are you, what are you doing here? Mm. So all of this stuff is, um, uh, it's, it's a lot to take in. Um, and I think we were up to like, six or seven total theories between the three of us here. <laughs> Something like that. Well, I think you can take that. You can combine it in with the artifact ending. Mm-hmm. Whereas if she did end up seeing Elster again, Elster wouldn't recognize her. So, I mean, I'm sorry. If she, if Ariane did end up seeing Elster again, Ariane would not recognize Elster, which is kind of like she is too far gone for anything. But at the same yeah. point, it's like, make your own path. And that's why the end you see them dancing together. I think it's just the acceptance that both of them have come to the end of their lives. And now they are, they are joining in what could be considered the afterlife. If you want to pair that with that, Mm -hmm. a, a symbolic dance or a metaphorical dance, um, it, and a, or a metaphorical, um, or sorry, or a physical, like losing of Ariane's wits. You know, if she's sick, she may not recognize Elster because she's sick and it, it she just doesn't have the capacity for it anymore. You don't know what's going on. Like you literally, you see Elster talks to her. She says, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. And then Elster dies and it's like a 10 second ending. There's, there's a lot of room for interpretation in just what happens at the end. Whether you ascribe to any real physical things happening in the game, whether it's all um you know figurative uh, or some combination of it i think that this game does a really good job of supporting all combinations of those things and in a way that is plausible and i, I think that unless you guys have more theories i think a good way to wrap this up would be just to commend them for walking that line where they they give you so little to really grasp onto but it's not too little for you to take it and run and, and come up with your own stuff. Because there's a world where they, they make this game, they give you the, the few things that they give you, and it's not enough. Or it's mm-hmm. not interesting enough for you to care enough to put all this work into, to, to read stuff, to watch videos, or in my case, to spend literal hours organizing my corkboard of, of notes in my <laughs> Google Doc here. Uh, not all games inspire that. So um, big, big credit to Rose Engine here. Yeah, oh, 100%. absolutely. 
And yeah. it's, it's interesting because I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm quite at this level yet, but I have seen a few people out there on the internets throwing around the notion that they believe that from a, a plot construction point of view, this game is superior to Silent Hill 2. I, I think Silent Hill 2 makes more of an effort to make sure that everyone's relatively on the same page than this game does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. This, this game's for you to put the puzzle together. Silent Hill 2 is... I, I mean, I'm just repeating essentially what Dave is saying here. This The storytelling is better in Silent Hill 2, whereas here it's for you to craft your own story, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's the thing is I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. I think they both excelled at what they were trying to accomplish, but I think they were fundamentally different things yeah this is this is like the difference between this i I was talking earlier about some games that lead you on this path of like really holding back the truth and just giving you little things and then at the end they tell you what happened right Um, i'm thinking of like immortality is a, a they tell you what happened in that game um, you have to find it. You have to do a bunch of digging to find it, but the game will tell you. Um, you can make up theories for why it happened, but they'll tell you what happened. Same in um, in Silent Hill 2. They'll tell you what happened, and then you fill in the blanks as you see fit. But it, it's not like a um, a mystery as to what happened with James and his wife in Silent Hill 2. They tell you. Mm-hmm. So. This is not like that, though. This is a game that doesn't tell you why or what. It gives you just little things to grab onto. So it's a little bit of different style of storytelling, a different goal. Uh, right. Even <laughs> even on the Wikipedia page, there's a, um, a bit about how there is no single consensus on the story. And I would bet that, de- that the developers are, they either don't know and they just wrote it in a very vague way, or they do know and they're just never going to tell. Yeah. which is cool either way. Yeah, I would see in in either case I I have to imagine that they're pretty pleased with that that being the conclusion that everyone has come to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, guys, thank you so much for uh coming on to talk about Signalis. Um I was really really excited to have you both on the show. Um I was really excited to dive into this spoiler section and hear um the theories and we have covered a wide range of stuff. So um, I appreciate you both so much. Thank you. Thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Thanks for having us on, man. Like I, I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. I always like being able to, to really just like dive into theory crafting about specifically about things that really, really interest me. And this is this was definitely one of them. So I, mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, hundred percent, man. It's always fun stopping by talking games with you or talking about what is going on with the letter T. That's right. So <laughs> it's, it's always a pleasure and, and thank you for having me back on man. And thanks. Thanks for having Shane too. This is, of course. Uh, this is great. Thank yeah. you so much. Uh, definitely. Um, the, you guys have an open invitation to come back uh, anytime you want. And um, we, we have lots of um, collaborations on retro hangover in the future. And uh, 
in the past now. And it's, it's, it's just great. Always great talking with you both. Um, again, a recommendation for everyone listening to check out Retro Hangover. You'll find that link tree down in the show notes where you can go find an episode for a retro game that you want to hear someone talk about because uh, these guys do it really, really well. So um, thank you everybody for listening. Again, I appreciate everyone who sticks it out to the end. If you somehow made it through this spoiler section uh, and you didn't play Signalis, you just wanted to hear the theories, uh, you could probably still play Signalis and come out with something. You're not going to come out with exactly any of the things we said. I feel pretty confident in that. Um, you'll be able to make your own opinions. So um, thanks everyone for listening. Tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog. <laughs>